When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's just get it started off with Suzanne. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? It's just going to be a beautiful day. I can't say that I was real anxious to get out of bed when the alarm went off at 3.15, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's what I do on Saturdays, and it's going to be a great day out there. Great. Um, I have, First of all, I've got a question that I want to pass something on. Okay. I was not. I was not staying on top of my cauliflower. Did not get the leaves tied up on top of it, so mm-hmm. the the heads exploded uh-huh. into little bitty segments. I went ahead and cut them anyway, and I found out that it cooks pretty much the same as it as it does when it looks pretty. Oh, it does. But one thing: don't be blaming yourself because. Tying the leaves up over the top doesn't keep it from exploding is a pretty good word to describe it. It keeps it from sunburning. It keeps it, you know, nice and white instead of getting a little bit of brown sunburn. That expansion of the top is more, much more due to uh, unusually warm weather, shall we say. And uh, it pretty much stretches the whole gamut of all the cauliflowers i i had some romanesco uh did exactly the same thing went from being a nice tight beautiful little you know i'm sure you know what the real odd little head that they make looks like and uh, the next day here it was spread out and everything so uh, uh it's been an unusual day it's still like you say cooks up and it's very good but uh don't don't be beating yourself up for not tying the leaves up that wouldn't have made any difference at all well, thank you very much. <laughs> Score one for being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's just Mother Nature kind of has thrown us a few curveballs this year. Fortunately, nothing real destructive, but I probably had the worst cauliflower I've ever had as a result of that. But like you say, it, it cooks up. It, it looks not so good, but uh, close your eyes, and it sure does share a lot of good things you can do with cauliflower. Absolutely. My question is about an area in my landscape. I've never had this kind of situation. I have a, 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 a wide brick chimney that's on the outside wall. Okay. The exposure is southeast. I live on top of the hill, so I get lots of wind there in the summertime. Uh-huh. For sun, I have from dawn until probably... 3 p.m. In, once the time changes in in, in summertime. <laughs> which is so, tomorrow. <laughs> which is tomorrow. Yeah. So I want to put, I, I was thinking a mutabilis rose might do there. Mm-hmm. And I also thought maybe pyracantha. I want some kind of color. Okay. Uh, 
what do you think? My, my first pick would be mutabilis. I love that plant. Uh, mutabilis would be a good choice. The nice thing about mutabilis is that it blooms over a very long period of time. Um, I, you know, pyracantha is, is pretty, but compared to the mutabilis rose, no. Uh, the only thing in favor of pyracantha would be that you can trim it to be a little bit more upright. Mutabilis, as you well know, is just going to kind of take over the area. You cannot make mutabilis rose, you know, conform to a simple little upright bush. It's going to, it's going to grow like a weed. It's going to reward you with huge numbers of flowers. But if you have room for it, um, I think uh, I think mutabilis would be an excellent choice. The other option that you could look at, because uh, my business partner did this on her uh, chimney in a very similar situation, and she put uh, sort of an antique-looking uh, trellis in front of the chimney and then grew vines up at, uh, at one point, passion vine. Uh, if you wanted just maximum color all summer long, you p- could plant something like Queen's Crown on a situation like that, and it would be very well confined. It would not be, you know, sticking out more than a max a foot or 18 inches out from the chimney. So if space is a consideration and it's not necessarily important to have something fully evergreen, uh, you could consider putting a simple or elaborate trellis there and growing Queen's Crown or Rangoon Creeper or um, you know, a lot of different vines. I like the metabolist idea. I just want to throw one additional idea out there to you. Right. You know, in the in the past, I had pretty good luck training a metabolist. I had uh-huh. a arched uh, trellis that went over a sidewalk. <laughs> okay. And by pure determination, I I made that conform to that shape. Granted, oh, yeah. I had to do a lot of pruning. And, and that's the whole thing. Twenty five yeah. years. Twenty five years younger. <laughs> Well, it, it again, you know, I just, and I'm going to talk with Howard Garrett about this. I was just reading an article uh, by a uh, uh, research group out of England, one of the universities over there, determining all of the human health benefits from spending a minimum of two hours a day out in nature or in the garden or something like that. So it's not a bad thing if you're forced sometimes beyond what you really intended to do to be outside doing things. But uh, I, you know, I don't want anybody to be a slave to the yard. And uh, if you want to put the time into uh, and, you know, growing a mutabilis like that, you can certainly do it. Um, but it's, it's just it's not the only option. That's my only point. Is mutabilis is definitely or butterfly rose for people who may not know the Rosa chinensis mutabilis uh, botanical name. But uh, it's just one of the prettiest things in the landscape. But it's kind of like Lady Banks. It it really wants to uh, spread out and take up some room. And if that's an issue, then you either have to make the decision to spend a lot of time working on it, or uh, just give up the room to it. Yeah, I, I don't have the room. My bed is only, what, five feet wide at that point. Okay. And I have another rose planted on the edge of the bed, so I guess I, I've been I, Then it all just comes down to how much time you want to spend working on it. The Metabolus rose is great. Um, there are other things that would take less effort and still, you know, accomplish the same purpose. Um uh, it's just mutabilis blooms over such a long season. That's one thing that I think makes it an, an excellent choice. 
you know, for a spot like that. And if you want some of the skin that you can train to be 10, 12 feet tall and spread out as wide as you want on that chimney face, uh, it just all depends on the kind of trellis you want to put there because mutabilis will just grow and grow and grow as long as you let it. You just have to, you know, let it know the direction that you want it to grow <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> That's true. Thanks. You're, I, like, I like your tip about the vines. Uh-huh. I could co- combine a couple different vines so I have one that's got leaves on it in the winter uh-huh. and then with the queen's crown. That would be pretty. Well, that would be pretty. Um, or you could even go with something like butterfly vine, mascagnia, that probably two years out of three is going to remain evergreen, and the years it freezes back, it comes right back out. Now, it's not nothing, you know, nothing has as many flowers as queen's crown does on it, but uh, the... the uh, Butterfly vine has beautiful yellow flowers on it, attractive green leaves, unusual seed pods, and, you know, virtually zero maintenance on it. So there there's several options to look at. I love the uh, Rangoon creeper. I started out questioning its hardiness, and uh, my partner grows an, on a big trellis on, on in her garden, uh, and this is up north of Bergheim. It freezes the ground every winter and comes back just unbelievably strong every spring. So that's another one to look at. If you want uh, beautiful color as well as fragrance, uh, Queen's Crown has some fragrance to it, but Rangoon Creeper just has to be one of the most fragrant plants in the garden. So uh, uh, you've just got a couple more things to think about, right. and uh, you may end up wishing you had more than one chimney because you want to try them all. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. Okay, thank you for your advice. Always a pleasure, always. Suzanne. Thank bye you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, bye. All right, it's going to be Billy and Jane and Hector. Billy's up first. Good morning, Billy. Morning, Mr. I mean, Bob. I'm sorry. You're very good. Very good. Good catch for so early in the day. Sounds like you're on the road, though. You may have been up a while. I'm I'm headed to the ranch, and there is why I'm calling. We've got a place down south, Bob, and down in the, the dry creek areas, we've got some stuff that... People down there call it a swamp grass, but this stuff stays green year-round. It probably can get four or five foot tall, mm-hmm. and I would love to get. I'd love to get in there. I try to put a road down through the middle to open the channel up a little bit. Maybe that's a mistake, but uh, man, you can't kill this stuff. I've had a dozer down there, <laughs> and it'd just ball up underneath you. Sure. Uh, yeah. But you you hit it right on the the nail right on the head, Billy, because it uh, it's one of these grasses that is going to thrive where you've got a little subsurface water, and um, you know along a creek channel is the place that you are most likely to have. We call it alluvial water. It's not really a uh, not really a spring, but there's a, a little bit of water that were there more of it, it would be a flowing creek instead of a dry creek. But, uh, yeah, people call it bear grass, goes by a lot of different names, but it is one tough, hardy plant, and uh, I guess you could get in there with a shredder and shred it down if you really wanted to, but it's doing you a big favor. It's it's what's keeping the soil in place down there, and um, 
Uh, it It's not something that you can just pick and plant anywhere you want to in the landscape because without that moisture down around its root system, it just grow, won't grow worth a darn. And that's why we see it on hillsides where there's a, you know, a seep there. We see it along creek beds where there's a little bit of subsurface water. But uh, it's one tough, hardy plant. You got that exactly right. Oh, I've never seen anything like it. Okay, well, I'll just live with it. Uh, one other thing, what about Rotaba? How do you control that? Or can, Is it like mesquite? It is a lot like mesquite in that it just wants to re-sprout. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't reseed the way, you know, the, the mesquite beans, the problem is that the cattle, the deer, whatever kind of four-legged creatures you've got out there, they eat the mesquite beans because they're high in nutrition. I mean, cows just think it's candy, but it passes right through the digestive system, comes out in the manure, and then you've got more more mesquite coming up everywhere. Weesatch is not that bad, and Weesatch at least rewards you with a, a lot of yellow flowers. But where you want to get rid of it, short of root plowing it, um, do the same thing I do on mesquite. It's, it's not organic, but it sure beats the brush killers. Uh, and I'll just cut it off as close to ground level as I can and douse it with uh, diesel, follow it up a few days later with a good dose of molasses to clean up the diesel, and that will kill it pretty effectively. Okay, well, we I've tried that on the mesquite, especially on the fence line. Yeah, and that diesel does work. Yeah, it There's does, no and, it, and it's so much better than Remedy as the uh, uh, the one that is so often sold as a brush controller. But that stuff moves; that'll kill a lot of stuff you had no intent on killing it. And if you read the if you read the directions on the Remedy, it tells you to mix it with diesel, and I think it's probably the diesel does more killing than the other. But uh, I I don't go for the brush killers; they are just too pervasive. They can move long distances. That diesel stays pretty much where you kill it, it's or where you put it. Uh, it's just I think important to go back, you know, a few days or a week or two later and follow it up with some uh, molasses, either liquid or dry, because diesel is basically you know, it's made of just carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and it will break down, and you can, uh, uh, not that they don't put a couple of nasty additives in it, but uh, good microbial life will pretty much break it down and clean up the soil in a hurry, and that's what your molasses stimulates. So, uh, for me, it's a two-part deal. It's not just killing the, the stump of the tree. Then you want to go back and clean up the thing that did the killing. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that's everything I got this morning. You have that's a safe a trip. Day. You have a safe trip and enjoy enjoy a beautiful spring day in South Texas. We're going to do it. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> ah, you. Thank you, Bailey. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Next up is Jane. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Bob. I have problem with fire ants, and they're in different places. And I know you talked about the orange oil, but what is the mixture on that? You know. If you are, are, are these like in the ground? Are they in pots? Are they scattered through the yard? Where are you fighting fire ants, or is well, it all of the I above? Was tell, do, I got them in the yard, uh-huh. pasture, large pots, and a flower bed. Okay. In the pots, and if you have, uh, you know, any real tender flowers and patience or things like Hibiscus. that. 
the uh, you've got to dilute your orange oil down pretty well. I wouldn't go over a tablespoon per gallon. I'm sorry, a teaspoon per gallon where I was pouring it through mm-hmm. pots because it will burn roots. Now, out in the yard, I mix it, uh, you know, a good deal stronger. I'll put like two or three tablespoons to a gallon, uh, and I will add a little bit of molasses to it. Uh, orange oil is a solvent, and basically it, it works against the the shell, the exoskeleton, the outer covering on the ant, and then the thing that actually does the killing are the many different soil microbes that uh, don't like fire ants either, and it's it's a very effective killer. Now, um, I always caution because fire ants aren't 100% bad. They're just 99% bad. Uh, they, they do a very good job of controlling ticks, uh, especially in pastures and things like that. And I can remember before the fire ants moved in, we had quite a tick problem in the hill country. I realize you're uh, not up in the hill country, but uh, the fire ants did eliminate probably 98, 99% of the ticks in the area. And quite frankly, I'd rather deal with fire ants than with ticks. So I'm not going to tell you to go on just a super eradication program, but where in they're in my garden, when they're in my yard, yeah, they have to die. I usually start out, unless it's a mound that just I want it dead, you know, five minutes from now. I usually start out with a bait called come and get it because uh, it's a it's a safe bait. It's based on spinosad that you can throw out. The ants pick it up, take it into the mound, feed the queen, and the whole mound dies out. And it may take a week or so for that to happen. But one little bag of spinosad will cover several thousand square feet, where if you have a big problem, that watering can and that orange oil, you're going to spend a lot of time out there uh, mm. killing ants. So the, the choice is yours. I usually go with the spinosad first, and then um, if I need to follow it up, that's when I'll use either the orange oil and water um, or else uh, uh, Nature's Creation has a good product out. They call it Mound Drench. It's actually based on uh, rosemary oil rather than orange oil, but it also is a very effective killer. But uh, the first thing I would do probably is get a bag of the uh, come and get it and see how much of your problem that eliminates. And probably, in my guess, it's probably going to reduce your problem by 90% at least. And uh, in the pots, at least, it's a whole lot safer. Orange oil, molasses, water, everything is totally safe to you, but it can burn the roots on plants if you, uh, you know, if you've got anything at all delicate. Can I use that two to three tablespoons per gallon on um, St. Augustine? Absolutely. Oh, okay. It won't hurt the St. Augustine. It, It might give you a little spot six inches in diameter where you get some yellowing on it, but you know how St. Augustine grows. Even if you get that little yeah. discoloration, it's going to grow back in in a hurry. Okay. Um, and when you use the diesel, uh, can that work on those wild thorny rose bushes too? If you just about you to cut them down. Yeah, just about any any brushy weed, it will work on. It's okay. always my last choice because, like I say, it's not organic. It's uh, um, it, it kills whatever you put it on. You can't use it. Um, you have to use it selectively. You can't use it just as a broad spectrum thing. But if you've got anything woody and brushy that you just can't get rid of any other way, yeah, it'll work very well on it. And everything you have to, you cut it down to the ground. You don't have to dig up any roots, right? No, I just cut it down to the ground and then douse the stump area. Okay. Um, I have some old canned vegetables when they go rotten, like say pickles. Uh-huh. Can I put that in my um, in my compost, or is that salt in there an issue? Depends on how much. Uh, if you had a lot of salt in there, it would be an issue, but I doubt you do. If 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 what you're putting in the compost will be no more than say a 
a one to one hundred ratio or something like that. Not going to make you different salt. A little bit of salt's actually a good thing, especially pickling salt, which is uh, has got some good trace minerals and things in it as well. Okay. Just handle Can I trim it. Trim a hibiscus plant that's kind of leggy right now. Absolutely, best time of year to do it. Okay, and I have some daffodils that I just put bulbs in the ground, and they're coming up with like those leaves. When mm-hmm. am I going to see if a flower? And how does that look like when they come up? Well, the leaves come up first, and the flower stalk coming up looks a lot like a leaf. When did you put these things in the ground? Beginning of December. Okay, then, yeah, you should see, uh, uh, you could have done a little earlier, but I thought yeah. you were meaning you did it last week. And, and I was <laughs> going to tell you, no, you don't want it to bloom before it has any roots. Uh, you'll typically see... Uh, foliage on it for two to four weeks before you start seeing the flower spikes come up. Oh, it's been about two weeks. Maybe I did plant them too late. I don't know. Just, are they out in the sun? Uh, morning sun, evening shade. Okay. Um, you know, in just about any situation, you should get blooms the first year. Long term, because that, that bulb has to rebuild itself before, you know, it can bloom again. Uh, the more sun, the better. Were these fairly good-sized bulbs? No. Okay. Like the so, size of a half of a regular garlic bulb, maybe? Okay. Um, one of the problems is that a lot of the narcissus, the daffodils that are sold, are sold as small bulbs at a low price because they expect people up north to plant them, and they just get better and better and better every year. When you start planting little bulbs, uh, the people that sold them to you, really, whether they told you or not, they really didn't expect them to do much the first year. Sort of year after year after year, they just keep getting better. In our warmer climate, a lot of the bulbs simply don't tolerate the heat that well. So uh, it may be as much as anything. If you started out with a small bulb, that bulb simply wasn't big enough and strong enough to put on much in the way of flowers this year. Let's don't give up on them for probably another two to three weeks. But in any event, water them, fertilize them, take real good care of them, and we'll hope that it's a variety that can grow and expand in size through its spring. It's They're going to die back when hot summer gets here, but you really want to help them out while they're growing in the spring because what you're doing is helping them store the nutrients for next year's growth and blooming. So let's keep our fingers crossed for some flowers within the next couple of weeks, but whatever you do, take really good care of them so that next spring you won't be disappointed in them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can I still trim back roses yet? Absolutely. Okay. And if I cut them off after when they're blooming, does that set back the plant if you say you cut off a foot or so for uh, flowers in the house? A uh, healthy rose, absolutely not. But remember, the more you're cutting for whatever reason, for to enjoy the blooms or anything else, the more you need to be helping that plant out with good fertilizing and watering. And uh, you take care of your roses, they'll take care of you. You neglect them, they'll get by, but they won't thrive the way you want them to. So be sure you're on a good uh, feeding and watering program. So how often should you use the rose glow? That's what I have. Rose glow, I'd use it every couple of months, but I would I would follow it up in between times with some has to grow or a good soluble liquid uh, just to give them a little extra boost. Rose glow is a great product, and uh, the one they make for us we call Color Essentials is even slightly better. But it's just kind of um, a liquid is going to not last as long in the soil, but it's going to work faster when you apply it. So it's kind of like my vegetable garden. I start out with a good dry fertilizer when I plant, 
But then I start following it up with a liquid application just to give it that little extra boost because I want maximum production, whether it's flowers on roses or whether it's uh, things to eat out of the veggie garden. Can I cut back my oleander, too? Uh, You're going to lose some flowers on the oleander. Best time is probably because oleander blooms on both old and new growth. Best bet with an oleander is to let it bloom first and then cut it back. But if you're more concerned about the size than about the blooms, then yes, go ahead and cut it back now. Okay. All right. I'll let you go. It's news time. You have a great, great weekend. Sounds like you All got right. plenty Thank to you, do, Jane. Thank For you. Bye bye. My pleasure. Bye. And you better hurry because one line is open. I guess, uh, Hector, I'm sorry we didn't uh, we didn't have time in that first 30 minutes. He probably had to get to work or somewhere, so he's dropped off, and we're going to be talking with Betty Lou and John and Carol. If you hurry, though, you just might get line number four down there, and uh, <laughs> look forward to visiting with you. Straight back to the phone lines, it is Betty Lou first. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'm here having my first cup of coffee. Uh, lucky you. Oh, I hate to go into this because I should take notes, and I keep forgetting my notes. <laughs> oh, what what can we help you with? Everybody that says, you know, I know you've already covered this, but that's because everybody has that question. So let's go over whatever you need to. Okay, it's a simple thing, and that's why I'm so disgusted with myself. But I forgive myself because I'm having coffee. There you go. Okay, hon. What I want to know, I have this beautiful potting plant that vines, and it's called D-I-P-L-A-D-E-N-I-A. Yeah, Diplodenia. Uh-huh. That's it. First cousin to Amanda Villa. Uh, oh, beautiful things, it. yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, it is beautiful. Only thing is, it's beautiful until I replant it. Mm-hmm. And then it grows, but it never flowers. So that's my question. Uh, on the back of this little deal, it said fertilized general fertilizer every two weeks mm-hmm. and then i also have mulch on you know around the plant too so that sun won't you know draw out so much moisture right so my question what kind of fertilizer should i do a uh, liquid or dry and which ones would be good and also um how can i get it to flower okay. how much how much sun does it get Hmm. How many hours a day, and is it morning or afternoon? Does it it have to be direct sun, or can it be sort of glancing? No, it really needs to be direct sun. And I have to say that rarely do I see a plant fail to bloom because of lack of nutrition. It is almost always either the wrong season or lack of sunlight. Now, Diplodenia uh, is a tropical vine. It is capable of of blooming any time of year, provided that the weather is warm enough. Uh, I would not expect, uh, out of doors, I would not expect much from a Diplodenia um, until the you know temperatures are up in the 80s, maybe even the 90s. Warm, sunny greenhouse, yeah, you might have it blooming all winter. But part of the problem is just as early it's cool. But the amount of blooms you get are going to be strongly dependent on getting as much direct sunlight. Now, it's not crazy about that hot, hot afternoon sun. It would just as soon avoid that, you know, 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock July sun. But really, sun all morning, I would say direct sun all morning is going to be pretty much minimum to get good blooming out of a diplodenia. But now, to your original question, 
Any good liquid fertilizer will work just fine. I happen to be partial to a couple of the Medina products, like their Has to Grow plant and their new fish, uh, liquid fish blend. But uh, uh, the folks at Fox Farm and their Happy Frog line, they make a couple of good liquid organic fertilizers. I believe that Espoma has a good liquid organic fertilizer. Any of those will work just fine on your Diplodini. So use whatever is convenient. Uh, for me, just the most convenient one out there happens to be the Medina product, and I use it on everything from orchids to uh, uh, lots of things in the vegetable garden and the yard all around everywhere else. So it's it's not like you have to put any special kind of fertilizer on there. You meet the plant's minimum needs, and if it has plenty of sun, it will flower. But I really am afraid that your problem is more lack of sunlight than it is lack of nutrition. Yeah, yeah, the more you're talking, the more I'm going, uh, I really need to <laughs> I, I hate telling the truth sometimes. No, I don't ever hate telling the truth, but I, I hate disappointing people because it's well, turned out not to be as easy as you thought it would be. Hey, I called, and that's the reason why. Okay, so now I have to go. I'm going, okay, look at your garden. Now, where is this going to go? And the thing I hate about it is that it did make it through the winter. Yep. And, and that's uh, the, you're fortunate that it did because yeah. Diplodenia is not one that we can count on to make it through the winter. Um, I would think about putting it into a big pot. That way, if we have severe cold, you can drag it inside if you need to because uh, I'm going to say probably two or three out of years, two out of three years, it's going to die and not come back in the garden. We just happened to, we had two or three cold nights, but other than that, thus far, we've had a very mild winter. So I I would think about moving it to a, a big mobile home, so to speak. I put it in a big <laughs> pot that you can move around if you need to. Oh, a mobile home, huh? Yeah, a mobile pot. That way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, well... I have three plants in a pot, uh-huh. and, and and they're about 12 inches, you know, on the top. Mm-hmm. Could I just take the whole pot? That's what I, I would. I'll need to cut off those vines and then put it where I'm thinking I'm going to put it. That would be my suggestion. That would be okay. Yeah, if you need to, if you need to reduce the top, that's no issue. But we don't want to mess up the roots, and they will have intertwined, intertwined substantially. So I would just leave it as a clump. A single vine of Mandevilla or Diplodenia, either one, uh, is not real showy. But you put two or three vines together. Is yours the uh, red or the hot pink? Which which Diplodenia do you have? Oh no, it's that red velvet yeah. looking one. Yeah, and that's that's so one variety. It's probably Little Red Riding Hood is actually the the variety that you have. But yeah, three plants in a pot. Uh, you can either put the pot somewhere and just grow and spread out, or you can put a little trellis in that pot, and you'll have a summer full of blooms if you get it in a little more sun. Okay, that's what I want to hear. Well, I'm going to be a good trooper, and I'm going to go ahead and do that. <laughs> you do so, Betty Lou, and Thank always you. appreciate your call. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Goodbye. John's up next, and it'll be Carol and Rick. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I should have called you last month. I hope you can help me with this. I've got a little. I've got some little mounds about the size of a half a dollar. Okay. And they're they're, they're only maybe a third of an inch high. Uh huh. And a hole right down the middle. Uh huh. And then I'm losing grass around it. I don't think it has anything to do with the hole there. I think what you're looking at are little. Mounds left by earthworms when we have good rains. 
Um, losing grass can be due to a number of things, but I don't think the little mound, and it looks like the, around the little mound, it looks like little tiny coffee grounds kind of piled up around it, doesn't it? That's it, right? Yeah, right, no, huh? that's just earthworms. That's nothing to worry about. Uh, if okay. you're if you're losing right. grass in the area, we have to think uh, grubworms. We have to think brown patch. We have to think dog urine. Uh, there are a lot of things that could be causing you to lose a little bit of grass. Sometimes just lack of sunlight, and um, you know it's been a pretty mild winter. But do you have Saint Augustine? What's your basic lawn grass? Saint Augustine, but it's growing back. The grass is growing back. Yeah. Don't worry about anything. Just put some, uh, if you want to speed up the growth in that area, a little handful of good fertilizer and a couple of handfuls of compost over that area, and be thankful you have the earthworm. Stop worrying about it. Okay, that's good, Bob. Thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure, John. Thank you. Goodbye. I'll be able to sleep better. <laughs> you don't don't lose any sleep over that little problem. I think of plenty of other things to lose sleep over, but uh, no, okay. you got you got friends out there rather than enemies. All right. Thank you, John. When's the best time to put put out nematodes? Uh, when you have a problem. Um, if you, you know, especially with St. Augustine grass, watch your porch light. If you see June bugs, they are the creatures that are laying the eggs that form the grubs. And it's the little tiny grubs, not the big ones that do all the damage. So um, I put out nematodes. If I have a flea problem, I put out nematodes when I see June bugs. And usually in my vegetable garden, I will do it just before I do my spring planting. I'll do it before I do my fall planting just to take care of any bad guys that may be, may be out there. But in general, uh, I am more reactive than I am proactive uh, with beneficial nematodes. And uh, there are just so many things to do in the day. And uh, uh, it never hurt anything but the bank account uh, putting out nematodes. But uh, when you're fighting grub worms, which is your principal enemy of St. Augustine grass, the time you want to be sure you get them out is when you start seeing those June bugs flying around. Okay, I'll do that, Bob. I thank you, sir, and you have a wonderful weekend. Okay, you too. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. All right, back to the phone lines. It's going to be Carol and Rick and Philip, and Carol is up first. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Okay. I can't remember with the tomato plants. Do I plant them below the little two leaves at the bottom, or do or above the two leaves? Plant them as. Plant them as deep as you like. Tomatoes are one of the few plants in the world where we can get away with that. But it not only is it you can plant them deep, uh, but it's sometimes a very good idea to because it will actually sprout roots out all the way up and down the stem. I usually will pinch off those two little leaves just so they're not below ground rotting. But, uh, oh gosh, years ago when I worked with a friend up in the hill country, we had commercial farmer or commercial tomato growers that would always want our biggest, most overgrown tomato plants. And I'd say, how on earth are you going to plant these? And they said, oh, we plant them in a trench. We dig a trench. We lay them on their side, just turn the top of the tomato up out of the ground and cover that whole stem up with uh, dirt. And it just gives us an incredible incredible root system so uh, uh you plant uh, it you know it's always important to have at least a fair amount of the stem and leaves out of the ground but uh a, as much bare stem as you have uh you plant it as deeply as you would like to oh okay and i know that i put the fistful of is that rock salt in the bottom of the hole no 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 remember. no not rock salt not, rock not, rock, what it, rock phosphate 
Well, okay, I have some of that, and then I know to, after I plant it, sprinkle Epsom salt around the... Man, do you need a job? I think we need a new salesperson <laughs> named Carol. <laughs> no, well, you've got it, you've got it all right, Carol. Okay, but then I thought I heard you say when I tuned in this morning that you start with the dry fertilizer. I've always used has to grow, had good luck with it, but um curious I, about using the dry fertilizer in the beginning. Well, I'll I'll be honest with you since it's early in the morning and only six people are listening. <laughs> I I don't always have time to do all the things I would like to do. Uh-huh. My dry fertilizer is sort of my backup in that I know it's going to be there in the soil. It's going to provide nutrition for the plants, uh, whether I, and I won't say remember, but whether I have time to get out there with the liquid fertilizer or not. I, you know, I, I don't want to list all the different responsibilities I have in life, but uh, sometimes uh, I don't get things fertilized with the has to grow when I really should or when I would really like to. I just, I, I like doing the dry fertilizer because it's kind of a backup. And then if I'm able to go along every couple of weeks with the has to grow, all the better. There's no competition. It's just, you know, it, it, it's just sort of a backup in case, uh, as Dave Ramsey would say, in case life happens and we've got a crisis with the water board. I've got cows knocking a fence down. I've got something going on with the land trust. And then there's always uh, Shades of Green, which occupies 40 or 50 hours a week of my time. So I, I, in, in my case, I'll be totally honest and say, do as I say, not as I do, because my garden always grows best when I can do all the things I want to, but I always grow plenty mm-hmm. of good stuff. Uh, and um, it, it, if I knew I was going to have the time to fertilize very dependably on an every two-week schedule, I might not worry about the dry fertilizer, but that's just kind of not the way my life works. Okay. I'm going to try planting one in a pot this year. Is, four, is a 14-inch pot big enough for one tomato plant? Depends on the variety of tomato. I would very it's definitely... BSN 968, the cherry tomato. Um, now that is a, uh, that is an indeterminate tomato. It doesn't know when to stop growing. It just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And it will eventually, you will find that even in that 14 inch pot, you're having trouble keeping it watered. Most people, and, and if you go into, uh, doing this, knowing what you're facing, I, I don't object to that at all, but most people would plant a determinate variety, which is not going to get huge. Lots of people would plant one of the little compact tomatoes like patio or something like that, which were really oh. designed for, you know, somebody with a patio or a balcony or something like that. Nothing wrong with your, uh, with your indeterminate cherries, but, uh, um, I probably, if I were going to do a, a cherry in a, in a, a container, it'd probably be whiskey barrel size. 14 inch pot is, is just enough to get it started. So it's up to you. Just as long as you realize that you're going to have trouble keeping it watered by uh, the middle of the summer. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. And one more question. If I can't get over there to hear Diane's presentations this morning, Will you have any of her handouts available? It depends. I, I think Roberta, I don't know how many she uh, put together, but uh, we always keep a backup. And 
you know, weekends are crazy in the nursery business this time of year, but in most cases we can always run and make a, make a copy. Um, if, you know, if you need, it'll be much more meaningful to you if Diane tells you all about the six pages of handouts that she sent us. So, uh-huh. um, make yeah. it if you can, but, uh, we'll try to hang on to some extra copies, uh, that you could pick up later if you like. Okay, Bob. Thank you so much. Have a great day. <laughs> you do the same, Carol. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. Salado Way. Good morning, Rick. Hello, Bob. How are you, sir? Uh, man, I'm doing fine. I haven't talked to you in a long time, but I'm an extremely long-time listener. I I'm appreciate sure well, that. Well over, fi- well over 15 years. Oh, man, you're making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Considering that <laughs> I've been on the air more than double that time, but it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's fun. And it's always good to hear from you whenever I can help. Well, uh, you know, I've always followed your organic philosophies and just... Uh, have just really uh, enjoyed the the process, but we, we've had a little something new interjected into our lives. We haven't had a dog in many, many, many years. We adopted a four-year-old German Shepherd okay. here not long ago, and I'm concerned about uh, what I've been reading and dealing with uh, fertilizing uh, grass. Okay. And, uh, and our dog, and I just need to see if there's a product or a, or a process that we need to to follow to keep her safe. Well, absolutely, stay away from weed and feed products. Uh, I would suggest that you stay away from synthetic nitrogen products, which means um, go with organic. I mean, I don't care whether it's Medina's growing green, uh, Maestro grows uh, Texas tea, Nature's Creations. Uh, premium lawn food the issue of course is that some dogs and i have to say my my two labs who will eat anything you know don't go after my fertilizer which is usually either medina or nature's creation but uh even if your puppy dog decides to eat a bit of the fertilizer at worst it's gonna give him or her an upset tummy but that's probably not even going to happen so um I I would go with any of the organic products out there, and you may have to uh, you may have to do a little experimenting. If if this is is it he or she, your new puppy? Are you there, Rick? Yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry, we have very bad cell phone connection. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Live, is is your is your puppy a he or a she? It's a she. Okay. And, uh, yeah, she's a. Uh, I tell you what concerns me: she licks her paws uh-huh. so much. And uh, but we've uh, I, I use nothing but but organic. Uh, you know, we've used Medina products for years sure. and years, and uh, and I just want to be sure that we you know do yeah. what's right. Yeah, what's she right I, and I appreciate your loving the dogs that much. I I feel the same way about my two pups and kitty cats and everything else. But there's nothing in that Medina product that's going to cause her any problem. Um, if you right. find that she does like to uh, like to eat it, or if uh, if she ever gets an upset tummy, you see Medina's products. Uh, they're growing green is is based on a poultry litter product, and some companies go to the opposite end of the spectrum. The Nature's Creations Premium Lawn Food is based on alfalfa, and I have to tell you, quite often they're they're more likely to eat the alfalfa than they are the chicken poop. But um, I, different dogs, uh, you know, have different tastes, 
and I doubt that she's going to eat any of them. What I do like to do, even though you don't have to water to keep things from burning because organic fertilizers don't burn the way your synthetic products do, I like to water it in after I put it on because it makes it less attractive uh, to dogs or anything else. But uh, as far as your puppy's health, uh, no, you just keep listening to Dr. Kirby as, uh, as she grows by the time she's about six or seven, get that annual ultrasound because German shepherds are especially prone to some splenic disorders, uh, that you want to be sure you catch early, but, uh, don't worry about your fertilizer. If you're using any of the organic products, you're not going to affect her health at all, but, uh, anybody that's out there thinking of using weed and feed, that's where we really run into a problem because they can absorb the nasty chemical directly through their paws. And when you have a, a girl like yours that likes to lick her feet, you're just inviting cancer into the family. But uh, you're staying organic. You're not going to have to worry about that one. Great. One other quick question. <clears throat> uh, squash bugs. Mm-hmm. Those things, the last couple of years, have been just driving me nuts. Uh, and suggestions on on dealing with them. Okay, well, there are two different things uh, that can hit your your squash plants. The really devastating one is called the squash vine borer that gets inside the stem and hollows things out, and the whole vines just collapse. Uh, the squash bugs are a, they start out as a little gray immature form, and then they turn into a big dark gray-brown um uh adult and you'll see them they'll get on your squash mainly on the fruit itself by the thousands are we talk which one of the two are we talking about well i think this is some kind of little insect that i find them on the leaves uh-huh and they they, they almost look like a miniature uh Stink bug. Right, and that's what they are, in effect. Um, I use, and you want to be careful not to do this in the early morning when the bees are real active. Uh, do it in the late afternoons. But there's a product out there called Spinosad Soap. It's a combination of liquid spinosad and insecticidal soap, and it is uh, one of the safest products in the garden, and it's one of the few things that I find will take care of stink bugs and the squash bugs and things like that. You know, early early detection, so to speak, is uh, one of the keys. I mean, I walk through my squash row every night. I walk through with a garden hose, and I'll wet things down, and these the adults always run up and get on the top leaves. They try to get out where they can dry off, and the old thumb and forefinger puts an end to that. But um, right. uh, where you have them, uh, spinosad soap is going to be the product of choice. Just try to keep it off the flowers because it is somewhat harmful to the bees. But use it at a time when the bees aren't really active, which is late afternoon, and try to avoid spraying the bees, and you'll control those things. Uh, I won't say easily, but you will certainly get them under control. You have to be persistent about it, though. Yes. Okay. I'll I'll certainly do that. Bob, thank you so much, and thank you for uh, all, all the years of... Uh, great advice we, we've always appreciated it's it. a great deal of fun and uh thank you for the support rick and you call me anytime don't wait so long to do it again uh, okay we'll do thank Take you care, sir Bob. you too uh-huh. Bye. bye-bye all right back to gardening and back to the phone lines we're going to talk to philip and robert if you've been getting a busy signal i've got a couple of lines open so push redial there 210-599-5555 while i say good morning philip hello sir Good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you. You've been talking about dieseling the 
mesquite. Right. Well, back in the 60s, we had a little bit of dozer work done, and then that regrowth came in so heavy that you couldn't hardly walk through it. Yes, sir. So my pop stuck me out there with a 55-gallon drum of diesel and a hand pump and a, <laughs> <laughs> you know, about a four-gallon can with about a four-foot spout on it. Yes, sir. Quarter inch. And I'd go in there, bring a little tagging ribbon with me, but every tree, you'd go up about 18 inches up and uh, dribble that diesel down it to where it would girdle it right. all the way down. Yeah. And then mark the tree and go to the next one. And eventually, like a eating that elephant, you finally get finished. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was I'll, like about 95% kill right there. We'd yeah. have to cut them down or nothing. But you had to do it like in December when the sap's down. Well, that would, that's the best time. But it'll, it'll work just about any time. Sometimes you have to use a little bit more in the active season. But, yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. That was just something I figured. Oh, you know, like those cut ants. About the same year, I was like, I said, it happens good when you're around 10 years old. <laughs> but we had cut ants move into a corn patch. Uh-huh. And they'd already wiped out like about three or four acres. You know, they easy going oh, right yeah. down the rows. Yeah. yeah. So we went out there at night with, well, give a 10-year-old a flashlight and say, hunt them fire ants. <laughs> We'd, I'd stake off every one of those little outside holes. Yeah, yeah. And he said, don't disturb them. And then the next day, at the heat of the day, we went out there with about 10 gallons of water. We found a main hole. Yeah. And he had one of those, you know, big gas spout with a flexible hose. We poured that water down in there. And then he had me go out there and stomp all them other holes shut. <laughs> and you drowned them. And then he poured about a gallon of gasoline down in there and lit it off and stomped that hole shut. <laughs> And that killed them. Well, it it will do it. I the the probably the water alone would have gotten them. Gasoline's kind of dangerous, especially as. Well, uh, but you know, as kids, we did a lot of use, use the water to get the ground wet, so the yeah. gasoline will run down in there further. And that was what the whole deal about that. It might not have been a gallon. It might have been a quart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but all it did is smothered them out. Well, it's just uh, sometimes father knows best, and it's. Uh, uh, it seems like we got along just fine without all the fancy, uh, all the fancy dangerous chemicals. As long as you had a good ten-year-old, and that was—I was the same position with my grandfather, and uh, I don't think it hurt me any. And I sure learned a lot of lessons from it. I appreciate you sharing with us. All right, just kind of little, little something. And you, you always remind me of a gentleman I worked with a long time ago. We got about a thousand plants in at one point, and. One of the employees went and said to the boss, said, Athen, what are we going to do with all these, or how are we going to plant all these plants? He looked at her and he said, one at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Philip, you have a great weekend. I appreciate the call. Next up uh, is Robert. Good morning, Robert. Uh, Good morning to you the Farmer James and Hummingbird Mark. (laughs) I'm sure they're listening out there. Okay, let's see. Speaking of beneficial nematodes, I'm wondering what what's the brand name and where can I order them? Because if I recall right, the ones you get are on, what, blue sponges? Yeah, we get them from a company up in Colorado Springs called Hydra Gardens. 
and um, you'll find a lot of nurseries carry them. We've tried them all. There are thousands. In fact, there were, at last count, something like 500,000 different kinds of nematodes out there, and some of the companies that package nematodes use different species, use different things. We like the one that Hydro Gardens makes called Guardian Lawn Patrol. I would tell you that for shipping reasons, try to find a nurseryman in your area, if possible, uh, that carries them. And um, I don't know whether it be Buchanan's over there or where you might. But um, um, uh, anyway, the the live on the Blue Sponge, uh, the company that produces them is called Hydro Gardens up in Colorado Springs. Okay, Hydro Garden, Gardens in Colorado Springs. Yeah, yeah. I bought some at the local uh, garden center now they come in kind of like moist yep. uh yep. what do you call that stuff yeah uh, it's usually vermiculite yeah either perlite or yeah. usually vermiculite i just haven't gotten as good control on the broad range of different things because i use them to control fleas wireworms um grub worms just about any any kind of beetle larvae in the soil and uh we pretty much tried them all and we it's a little more trouble and uh, they, you know, we, we get them fresh every week because they, they have about a two-week life shelf, shelf life in the refrigerator. And a lot of nurseries don't want to be bothered. They want something to stick on the shelf. And, you know, just so uh, if it's working for you, do it. If you're looking for something that we have had better success with, uh, the ones from Hydro Gardens on Little Blue Sponge are, uh, you know, are the way that we go. Now, that used to be when we had Fertile Garden Supply here in San Antonio, um, I know that they would pack and mail them to people who call them from around. They aren't around anymore, and I'm not sure if anybody offers that service. But at the very minimum, you can call Hydro Gardens and say, who distributes in the Houston area, and you probably find somebody pretty close to you. Uh-huh. Okay, or try to order them. But, yeah, the stuff that I've gotten locally that comes on the, what is that again, perlite? Yeah. Trouble is that I have to sift. Uh, you know, to get all that perlite off there, because I do what your buddy uh, Dirt Doctor says, and mm-hmm. he puts them, you know, just in a gallon or two-gallon watering can, kind of right. sloshes around. Yep. Well, that pl- well, I haven't gotten all the uh, perlite out, and that plugs up the holes. Oh, you've been there, done that. Okay, that's it. Thank you. You're sure welcome, Robert. Thanks uh, for the call this morning. Uh, Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right, it's going to be Joyce and Rita and John and Marty, and Joyce is first. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning to you. How are you this fine Saturday morning? Oh, it is, it is, it is. All these days are getting nicer and nicer, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> if we just had the enemy, the energy of our four-legged friends, it'd be even better. Oh, it would. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling about my beautiful Christmas poinsettia that is still a beautiful Christmas poinsettia. <laughs> no, it's getting, it's beyond a beautiful Valentine's poinsettia, and it's getting ready to be a beautiful Easter poinsettia. It is, indeed. However, I must admit that when I have to bring it in, it doesn't get enough light, so it has lost a number of the bottom leaves. Mm-hmm. The, top, the top still looks gorgeous. But my question really is... At what point, uh, I'm going to try to keep it over, but it, it's a large plant, at least I consider it a large plant, and I don't want it to get larger. When would be the proper time 
to cut it in half or, or what what would be the method of getting it reduced in size and at what point in time, even though it's still in gorgeous bloom? I know it'll eventually start growing out the top, and I don't want that. Well, you want it to be able to have good bright light when you cut it back. So it becomes a question of when is it going to be safe to leave it outside, right. and it will go down into the 40s with no damage. So. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I always remember Alton Graham, people would come and say, when's it going to freeze, Mr. Graham? And it'd say, when it gets to 32. And so <laughs> when you feel that um, that you're safe to put it outside and leave it outside, because I know moving it back and forth can be a bit of a challenge, but at the point that you can move it outside and plan on leaving it outside, whether you put it in a bigger pot or in the ground, whichever way, then um, that is the time that you can go ahead. You can do your pruning back all the way up to the middle of July. That's the cutoff date for when we prune them. So uh, you've got a lot of time, you know, to play with here. But uh, I would just wait till you can move it outside till the weather's warm where it's going to regrow fairly quickly. And um, I'm not about to try to tell you when that is, but Mother's Day would be a pretty good target date to keep in mind. Yeah, all righty, good. That was uh, kind of my thought, but I know in the past when I've kind of fooled with them, I, I've waited until they started to grow out, and then I was didn't want to cut them back that much. Yep. And I, anyway, I was fooling around with it, so I thought, well, let me just ask the question now, and then I can plan. Well, your, your, your professionals do it up until the middle of July. After that, you need to let them make their growth for uh, the beauty of the holiday season. But uh, uh, it's a long time till the middle of July, so we don't have to rush into anything today. Oh, no, I can leave it as that beautiful plant that everybody still admires on the porch, even though it is a little sparse at the, at the base. Well, you can always cut a little uh, green foliage of some sort. We used to use uh, lower limbs off the Christmas tree, just kind of tucked into the soil every now and then when one lost too many leaves too early. And uh, on close inspection, everybody sees what's happening, but from a distance, uh, they don't notice what you've done. So Wonderful suggestion there. That absolutely can be done. Anybody can do that. That's good. Uh, you mentioned Rangoon creepers, and I have a Rangoon creeper, but it's planted in too much shade. It grows, but it never blooms. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mind that it's there because it fills in a space that I like, but my question is, does it, it does it lend itself to rooting? I'd like to move. Uh, you'd like to get some cuttings going if it does. Uh, it will root, but not um, not at this time of the year okay. because, uh, well, you know, it's probably frozen back, and the new growth that comes out on it is too soft and succulent to root. You need to be rooting mature wood. So by midsummer, yeah, root all the cuttings you like of it. But this time of year, just uh, leave it alone and enjoy it for its foliage. Yes, it did. Uh, it didn't. I don't know. It lost the leaves. Whether it really, I don't think it froze. So it's it's got all nine fresh growth on it. So obviously, then that wouldn't be the time. So that's no. fine. That can easily be done. Also, good summers. <laughs> I can put off stuff till summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and hopefully it'll be a nice summer to get it done. Absolutely. Uh, my third one is a friend surprised me. She, she. Said her greenhouse was getting too full of plumeria uh-huh. because she has a friend who gives. She said gives them to her. Now she, uh, because she doesn't want to try to keep it in the greenhouse. Said I have too many. So I said, well, she brought me one. Uh huh. And this thing is the cutest little thing I've ever seen, and that's why it's only about eight inches tall. Right. It has three branches, and the little handwritten tag says, 
dwarf plumeria. Yeah, just Joyce, it needs to go out in a good sunny area after the danger of cold weather is passed. Water it like you would anything else thoroughly and then let it get dry on the surface and feed it pretty regularly. And summertime should give you beautiful blooms. And we'll hold it there because I have to go to news. This is KTSA San Antonio. So let's just get started. Good morning, Rita. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Hey. I have a question about the corn gluten meal that you put out for graspers. Okay. Um, I did. I I got some Monday and put it out. How often do I have to do that? Is it a one-time application? I or? wish it was. I wish it was. Uh, no pre-emergent product, whether it's natural or the blasted chemicals that I don't care for, None of them actually kill the weed seed. What they do is allow the seed to sprout, and then they keep it from forming a root system. But they all get broken down by other things. After all, corn gluten meal is a natural product. It's actually a fairly good fertilizer, in my opinion. It's much better fertilizer than it is pre-emergent. So to really be effective, you've got to put it out about every 45 to 60 days throughout the whole growing season because blasted grass burrs can sprout any time from March through about September, even early October. So I'm I'm not a big fan of any pre-emergent. If you're going to use pre-emergent, I certainly prefer corn gluten meal. But because of that long sprouting um, ability of the grass burrs, you, you have to put it out three or four times uh, during the summer months. Now, like I say, it does have a lot of good fertilizer quality, so it's going to help things grow. But in my yard, and at one time I had probably as bad a sticker burr problem as anyone could ever have, and I put out, uh, I did it in the fall, although I think it would work to at least some degree in the spring, I put out about a half an inch of good compost over the area, and that worked as the best pre-emergent I've ever seen. I went from having in an area of about 30 by 50 that we use for croquet court, I went from having thousands of grass burrs. I think I had to pull three grass burrs the entire season afterwards. That was about five or six years ago, and I haven't had a grass burr in that area since. So uh, corn gluten meal is easier, but it's uh, a lot more work having to reapply and reapply. Uh, if you've got anybody that could help you put out half an inch of good organic compost, I think that would probably do more to stop your grass burrs than the corn gluten meal would. Okay, where do you get the compost? I mean, is it... Are you in the Bernie area? Yeah, I'm I'm out. Yeah, talk talk to Jeff for Corden. With all the construction. Oh, my God. <laughs> Tell me about it. I... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we don't need to go there. That's that's a, that's a big, big mess up there. But anyway, um, you can call Stone and Soil Depot down there on I-10. Talk to Courtney okay. if she's in the office or Jeff if he's around. And uh, they will deal with the traffic and get it to you. You don't even have to go down there. Just tell them you want that good organic compost, the one that's certified organic. And uh, it's actually made by New Earth, but... Uh, uh, Stone Soil Depot is going to give you the same good price and a lot better service than having them have to haul it out of San Antonio. And uh, Stone Soil Depot is just nice people to do business with. I've got to go pick up a little more rock from them this week myself. Do you you're going to pick up rock and you're up here in the hill? Okay. Uh, flagstone. Um, flagstone. I, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you don't by chance have their phone number, do you? I don't, but it's just okay. Google Stone and Soil Depot, and that'll come up uh, okay. real quickly. It's 
I want to say six eight eight one double oh one or something like that, but I, yeah, I don't want you okay. waking anybody up with the wrong number. Google it. You'll yeah. find it real easily. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to say talk to Courtney okay. if she's there. Okay, but it, until until I could do that, and, and because I have the corn gluten meal, about every about the first of every month or something like that? I do it every other month. Every other month. Yeah. Okay. And do water it in good. Oh, water it. Oh, yeah. I was told that when it rains, you have to do it because it's gone now. Well, that that contributes to its breakdown, but when you first put it out to get it working, it needs to be moistened out. It'll also keep the birds from eating so much of it. And, um, um, yeah, I think it would be good. Uh, oh, hold on just a second. My wonderful engineer, Chris, just came running into me, and he's handing me a phone. And let me see if I can pull this up. And... Uh, phone number 210 687-1005. 687-1005. Area thank code you. 210. Say thank you yeah. to Chris. <laughs> thank you, Chris. <laughs> she says thank you, Chris. But, uh, yeah, but no, I, uh, when you first put it out, now after that, you don't want to water because if it stays too moist, uh, it doesn't do its job of keeping them from forming the root system. If we have one of these uh, periods when we get constant drizzle and things like that, corn gluten meal is a total waste of money because a little seedling can go for a long time without roots and kind of waits out that period. But uh, uh, first, when you first put it on, I would give it a thorough watering. After that, I would water on your normal schedule only. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. That was my question. Good question, Rita. Have Thanks. a good day. You Thank do you. the same. Thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, top of the board is John. Good morning, John. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have um, a friend that just bought a home in Bolverde. Okay. The magnolia tree. Okay. Is that something that will grow well there? Um, do they have any soil or are they sitting up on a rocky hilltop? Um, the house that they bought is in a development where I think they did a lot of, um, moving dirt around. So it's <laughs> probably spilled dirt. It isn't like natural topsoil. Or well, as long as it's not pure caliche, as long as it's not a shelf of rock, magnolias can be grown. Magnolias are not as happy as they would be in, uh, you know, further east, like Louisiana or Alabama, Mississippi, over in that area. Uh, but in San Antonio, you can look around uh, King William, you can look around Monta Vista, the areas with deeper soil, uh, do a very good job with magnolias. But a but couple of important things about them. You might want to get them one of the slower-growing magnolia. There's really... A really nice magnolia that has the beautiful white flowers and everything, but it is called Little Gem, G-E-M. And it uh, it doesn't grow as quickly. Consequently, it doesn't get its roots down into the lousy soil as quickly. It it, um, it makes a beautiful tree. I can't really call it a dwarf tree. I'm just going to call it a, a slower-growing one. If you ever dine at uh, Papado's Restaurant, all of them have several Little Jim Magnolias around so you can see what they look like. And that would be my choice for planting in the Bulverde area. But I would improve the soil. I would always keep it well mulched. And here's one of the key things about growing magnolias, and that is don't cut the lower limbs off. Mother Nature designed that tree with limbs that basically hug the ground because it that shades the soil underneath the tree. It keeps the soil cooler. 
it allows the Magnolia's root system to do a whole lot better. I see people that move into homes that have Magnolia's. The first thing they do is they go saw off all those lower limbs because they want to put a lawn chair or a picnic table or whatever underneath it, and the trees just languish and frequently die. If you're going to grow a Magnolia, you've got to give it room to where it can have limbs virtually all the way to the ground for the tree to really survive and do well. But, you know, they're gorgeous trees, those glossy, dark green leaves, the big white flowers. Um, I can see why why they would really like to grow one, but it's just going to be a little bit more challenging in Bulverde. I would choose the area with the deepest soil. I would choose Little Jim as the variety, and I'd keep it well mulched and watered and fertilized. And, uh, again, it's not going to look like it does in Birmingham, but you can grow a nice magnolia up there. And do you carry them at your nursery? We do. We do. I'm sure most good nurseries do. But, yeah, we, we have them uh, in several different sizes. All right. Well, that was my question. Thank you so much, Bob. Excellent question, John. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. You're welcome. Goodbye. All right. Uh, yeah, I've got time to take one more call before a break, and that'll be Marty. Good morning, Marty. Good morning. Good morning. I just have a quick question. Okay. I wanted to. I discovered yesterday that our forest pansy uh, redbud uh-huh. has burr holes and not bore holes uh-huh. all on one branch and has some sort of scaly-looking stuff on top of the branch. The rest of the tree is okay. Okay. Well, it has this... blooms all over, you know, the main central part of the tree. Mm-hmm. I don't. We didn't water as much this year. We were trying the recommendation of not watering so much. Right. Which is the right recommendation. Um, I, I, at this point, I wouldn't worry. Uh, the scaly-looking stuff growing on the limbs is probably what we call a lichen, which is totally harmless to the tree. It's just a little symbiotic plant relationship going on, and um, has it's just using the tree limb as a place to grow. It has, has no impact and no effect at all on the tree. Red buds notoriously will have... Uh, some dead wood in them, and the holes are probably actually perhaps from carpenter ants or something like that rather than from borers. I can't say that I've ever really seen a borer issue in the red buds. Uh, What I would probably suggest is the area right around where you're seeing this. I would mix up some orange oil, oh, maybe three or four tablespoons to a gallon of water or three or four teaspoons to a quart of water, Just spray it directly on the trunk. This will kill ants. If there are any borers in there, it will actually kill them underneath the bark. But um, it's just the nature of the way the redbud grows. I love forest pansy. It's just so gorgeous with those dark, you know, red-purple leaves, at least in the spring. But you're always going to have a little bit of wood. You're probably always going to have a few ants around. The lichen's nothing to worry about, and... um, uh, it's just sort of normal for the tree to grow that way. It's, uh, uh, it, it's a good tree. It is probably grafted on Eastern red bud rootstock, which means it's not totally happy here, but, uh, I've seen them, you know, 25 feet tall. I've seen them six inches in diameter. So, uh, they're not going to have the long-term durability of a live oak or something like that, but, uh, you've got a, you've got a good tree doing what it normally does. And I don't, I don't hear anything to worry about. Well, that's great news. It does have a big trunk. It's done really well. So uh-huh. 
That's very good news. Thank yeah, you and, very much. And the advice about keeping it on the dry side is absolutely the right advice. Uh, most of the time, if I see people killing red buds, it's because they're killing them with kindness by watering them too often. Now, there's no such thing as too much water. When you water that tree, really flood it, but let it get pretty dry before you water it again. Okay, wonderful. All right, thank you. That's all I have today. Marty, you get out and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Certainly. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Back to gardening and straight back to the phone line. It's going to be Elroy, Jack, Kenneth, and John in that order. Good morning, Elroy. Morning. Hey, good to hear your voice, sir. How are you today? Okay. Uh, is it too late to plant uh, spinach and uh, broccoli and stuff like that? Even in Fredericksburg, I think it's pretty late. If I were going to try to squeeze another crop in, um, I definitely would be planting it from little plants. Broccoli, I'm afraid you're totally too late on. But if you get one of the uh, what we call the Savoy spinaches that Bloomsdale are one of the ones that has the kind of curly leaves, you'll get a little bit more out of it. But you're, you're awfully late. I'm... Uh, uh, we're getting, we're right at the time, just getting ready to plant tomatoes and peppers and squash and cucumbers and eggplant and uh, just just finishing up. Uh, I again, spinach maybe, but it, it needs to be the curly leaf form. And if it gets real warm real quickly, uh, it's not going to do as well as you'd like. Okay. If you're looking for a good leafy vegetable, plant some chard, uh, ruby chard or bright lights or even just your lucillus, your standard uh, uh, green chards. Those things can grow all summer and produce some really good quality um, green, leafy greens for you. And uh, the chard is much more heat tolerant. I would I'd actually suggest that much more than spinach right now. Okay. And uh, then on trees. Uh, uh, last uh, last year, I went out to the fence line and dug up some uh, rusty black holes. Yes, sir. Wonderful and plant. Put them in and put them in a pot to get them established. And uh, is it all right to plant them now? And, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll- Plant them where you can give them a little bit of water. But rusty blackhaw viburnum is one of the real treasures of the hill country. I I wish we had more commercial sources available. So you you've got a you've got a real winner in that plant. Uh, realize they're going to get pretty big. They're going to get not not really tree like, but I've seen them eight or ten feet tall. So give them some room to grow. But they're beautiful with flowers in the spring. They're of course one of the deciduous viburnums. But it's a wonderful plant, Roy. I'm glad you got some started. Um, but I know in, in the fence line, they get a lot of sprouts out from, do they develop that too, or uh, is it, can you keep them clean underneath? You uh, can, you can keep them clean underneath. You've probably just got, you know, here up in that good old lava filled, uh, Fredericksburg soil and, uh, they, they m- may sprout a little bit. But further down in the hill country, I've never seen them have a problem with uh, too little, too many little sprouts coming up. I, I think you can control that with no trouble whatsoever. Okay, I guess that's about it. Well, you get out and have a good day. It's always good to hear your voice, sir. Thanks for the call. Okay. Thanks a lot. Certainly. Bye. Goodbye. Yeah, rusty black hall viburnum is, uh, is a really good plant. Um, Let's talk next to Jack. Hello, Jack. Good morning. 
Morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Excellent. Uh, I have two questions. Okay. I have a lot of uh, larkspur and poppy seed. Is this the best time to plant that? Oh, I wish you planted it two months ago. My larkspur and poppies are both about to bloom. Get it planted as quickly as you can. Now, um, do you know which kind of poppy you have? The big old oriental poppies? Or are they just the red garden poppies, California poppies? What kind of poppies do you have? I actually got the seed from poppy plants in Hemisphere. Uh, okay. Plants were about... Uh, about 30 inches tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to need to just hope and pray for a long spring because when the weather gets really hot, um, they're going to start going down. To get, get them planted today, but uh, next year try to get them planted in January, early February at the very latest because uh, – uh, they ought to already be up, you know, 12, 14 inches tall and starting to bloom. So if we have a, you know, a, a pleasant spring, you're still going to have lots of time to enjoy them. If we just turn off hot and dry immediately, going to be a little be a little bit disappointing. Gotcha. Okay. My second question is: I have uh, two large foxtail ferns in pots, and uh, when I water them, the the water just runs off immediately, which tells me they're all root bound. Uh huh. Uh, if I want to uh, separate those and replant them, can I just take a saw to the roots? It's tough to do. Um, you know, they're, they're, I don't know anyone commercially who propagates them by division. They they grow easily from seed. And if it's at all possible, I'd encourage you just to put it in a bigger pot. But if they're already in pots that are too big, you really don't have a lot to you know, to lose, you can try separating them, but, you know, I, I guess, you know, I guess a fairly fine bladed, uh, you know, if you're using something like a uh, Sawzall or something like that, I know we should call them a reciprocating saw than rather than use a brand name, but uh, don't overdo it. Don't try to cut them in too many pieces. You can probably break that crown in half, maybe in thirds, but um, you, you, you're going to set the plant back at best. Uh, you're going to find big old nodules on the roots, and some people think those you plant those to make a new plant. No, those are just an expansion of the root to hold water to help the plant get through dry times. So uh, it's, it's kind of like a crown of edible asparagus. If it gets big enough, you can break it up into more than one piece, but... Uh, um, it's, it's not the preferred method of propagation. If they're just too hard to maintain, uh, what I would suggest doing is maybe even just plant them in the ground or something like that. If you have a place to, it's just trying to divide them. is going to be the last option because it's not usually real successful. Okay. Well, that's what I needed to know. I, you Thank know, you I always try to tell the truth. I hate to tell you something that's not what you wanted to hear, but uh, uh, that's kind of the nature of the beast with the foxtails. There is one other good option, and that's find a friend and give it to them, and then go down and spend $10 and get yourself a nice new gallon container and start again, and you'll be set for several years. <laughs> I'll try that. Very Thank good, Jack. I appreciate the call. Anything else I can help you with today? No, sir. That's, that's what I needed. Thank you, you get out and enjoy your Saturday. All right. It's going to be Kenneth and John and Lynn and Ann. And back up Fredericksburg way. Good morning, Kenneth. Fine. How are you doing? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? 
Doing great. I have a question about no-till gardening. Yes, sir. I may be a little too far gone, I think. I planted Elbin rye back in, like, October or so. Uh-huh. I fertilized it several times just before rains. It's now about eight inches tall. Okay. What did I do? <laughs> just basically, you know, leave it alone. Were you growing it? Is a general purpose cover crop? Were you using it to destroy root knot nematodes? What was your what was your main Im, uh, impetus for for planting Elbon rye? I don't think I really have nematodes that bad. Uh-huh. So I was just doing it as a cover crop in my vegetable garden, and for like green manure. Sure, sure. I would encourage you next time to do a legume like either a clover or winter peas or something like that. But at this point, I would just water it and let it grow until you're ready to uh, plant your warm weather crops and then just mow it off as close to the ground as you can. I'm not a big fan of, uh, of tilling up the soil Really, for two or three reasons. Number one reason is it brings so many weed seeds up to the surface. Uh, number two is it breaks up an awful lot of good, long, filamentous, beneficial fungi in the soil. And number three, it brings a lot of organic material up to the surface of the soil where it can simply oxidize and go away. But um, I, Albon rye is a fine a fine cover crop, but people plant it most frequently because the root knot nematodes, which are, you know, damaging nematodes. We talk about beneficial nematodes, but root knot nematodes are damaging nematodes. They burrow into the roots of Elbon rye because of chemicals in the roots. They can't get back out. They're sort of trapped inside the roots where they eventually die. So you're getting a secondary benefit, but when it comes to soil building, I I personally think that a legume is a better wintertime cover crop, but, you know, you've got the Elbon, enjoy it, let it grow, but when you get ready to plant squash and tomatoes and things like that, and in Fredericksburg, you'll be a little bit later than I am in Bernie and a lot later than folks in San Antonio, just mow it off and interplant among it, and you're off to a good start. All right, you know, I did, you know, I planted the Elbon right is a combination of that and a red clover. Okay, well, you've got a great... Yeah, both of those things are going to die out in the heat. You don't have to kill them. You don't have to worry about them. They will go away on their own. I just, like I say, uh, when you get ready to plant, if you need to do so, just mow them down so you can work around them. But, uh, yeah, an Elbon rye clover mix would be be a perfect cover crop. I think you've done extremely well. But you know what? I cannot see the red clover because of Elbon rye. <laughs> well, I in that case, I probably would get out with my line trimmer and knock the rye down to where I got a little bit more sunlight down on the leaves of the red clover. Okay. I didn't know if maybe it should open it up and let the deer graze on it or what. Uh, deer will get in there and pull it up. Uh, you know, deer oh. deer can't bite things off. They have to grab it and rip to get a bite oh. of it, and they're going to want to eat the clover before they eat the rye because... Uh, uh, you know, unless you've got access, uh, the whitetails are browsers rather than grazers. So, no, I'd I'd be uh, I'd be out there using my line trimmer to knock it down to get a little more sun to the clover and uh, just let it grow and and do until uh, you till you're ready for your warm weather crops. Okay, just just dig up let's say a, an eight inch hole where I'm gonna put the tomatoes. 
What I do is I don't dig a hole anywhere near that big. And I, you know, uh, and I planted tomatoes a couple of days ago. I know it may be a little bit early, but probably two or three weeks ago, I went out and everywhere I was going to plant a tomato plant, I put about a cup of fertilizer and then I put a little mound of compost over it. And if, if this is going right on top of the rye or right on top of the clover, that's not a big deal. But then when I'm ready to plant my tomatoes, I just, and, and I'll, I'll make it kind of like a little crater. I'll go back in water but uh it just really gets the soil activated underneath that and then when i'm ready to plant tomatoes i just dig the hole a little bit deeper than i need to i put a big handful of rock phosphate in the bottom of the hole and uh, plant my tomato plant on top of it but i'd say my average hole is probably going to be oh maybe four inches in diameter rather than eight inches and it's going to be uh, depending on how much of the stem I want to bury on the tomatoes, it's going to be about four inches wide, maybe five or six inches deep. But uh, uh, you don't need to dig a giant crater out there. Okay. Will the albumin die when it gets warm? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's going to totally die out. Maybe not when it gets warm, but when it gets hot, it will be gone. Okay, so it, it won't overcover the grow over the tomatoes. No, by the time it's time for your tomatoes to really take off, the rye will be dying back. Okay, that's what I needed to know. Good questions. I appreciate the call, Kenneth. You have a wonderful weekend. Right, you too. Thank, Thank you, you so sir. Much. It's my pleasure. Uh-huh. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. All right, let's see. Next up is going to be John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Dr. Webster. How are you this morning? <laughs> well, if there's any doctor about it, it's uh, it, it's strictly uh, a euphemism, but I'm, uh, you know, my day's off to a good start and just going to get better. Very good. I, I have a, a lawn in uh, North San Antonio, like 281 in Evans. Okay. Where, you know, the soil is black and it's rocky. And the uh, problem was, Bob, was that I had two oak trees in a small front yard. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, between the shade and the roots, it, it took out the Bermuda grass that was there. So mm-hmm. I have to, to resod. And I was thinking about coming back in. Uh, with uh, Floritam, St. Augustine. No, I wouldn't do that. Uh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, okay. Floritam is a high, a high light St. Augustine. Uh, Floritam likes it, you know, hot and sunny, and that's what, <laughs> that's the problem you had with the oak trees. I'd be looking at Palmetto or Delmar if you want to go with yeah. the St. Augustine. They're going to be much better varieties for you out there. Yeah, Bob, I took out one of the trees. Uh, oh, okay. It was just such a much a problem with the neighbor. Uh-huh. So I went on and took out one of the trees. So I just have one oak tree okay. in the front yard. Does that make a difference? Well, again, the choice is yours. Um, I, you know, being a water guy, serving on the water district, knowing all about water shortages and how expensive water is and is going to just continue to be worse, Um I'm more into ground covers. I'm more into, uh, you know, lower water using things other than lots of grass. But if you have the water and want to do it, then uh, then it's it's your choice. But I will tell you that in a sunny area, uh, Floritam is probably your best choice in St. Augustine's. In a shady area, uh, the Del Mar or the Palmetto are going to be 
a better grass are going to do better for you. And, and I love St. Augustine. I think everybody should have some St. Augustine because it doesn't have chiggers. It's usually green 12 months out of the year. It's a comfortable grass to walk on, but I just, I, I, a lot of people plant way too much of it, but, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't take any more water to keep St. Augustine looking nice than it takes to keep Zoysia or Bermuda looking nice. So everybody claims that it's a water hog. It's simply not true. It does have to be watered. If we go into a drought, if you stop watering it, it dies. Whereas, you know, the Bermudas and things would just go dormant. So, um, it just you you need to look at that yard and say long term what works best in John's life and if it's uh, if it is St Augustine then just keep in mind that uh, Floratam's more for the sun Balmetto and Del Mar are more for the shade and uh, get yourself some good sod um, and from Thomas Stone Landscape be the closest to out there to you that's going to have quality sod and go for it. Yeah. Okay. One other question, Bob. Just talk to me about a little bit about the process for putting it. Given right now, how should I, how should I start right now and go through the process of getting it in? Okay. Um, and that's an excellent question. Uh, first of all, don't get your grass until you're ready to plant it because it cannot remain stacked on the pallet. It has to be planted immediately after you get it. Um, you want your new sod to make good contact with the soil underneath. So if this means if you've got weeds and things like that, mow it off as low as you can. If you've got dead grass and things in there, rake that out as best you can. Uh, just the, the critical thing is you want that new sod to be in contact with the soil underneath it. If you want to put down a little organic fertilizer, I think that's a good uh a good thing to do because organics never burn using the synthetic fertilizers we always used to leave the grass in for at least a month to get its roots established before we fertilized it with organics i like putting down the fertilizer first and putting the sod on top of it um it's a bit of work you know uh you call all your friends and get a case of beer and and make a party out of it would be my advice but the other important thing is after you get it down you need to rent or borrow one of these water-fillable rollers, uh, and you can get it at any rental agency. In fact, the grass companies may actually loan you one or rent you one. But the whole idea, you're not trying to level it. You're just trying to press that new sod as tightly to the ground underneath it, take out all the air pockets, and then it's just a matter of watering. You water very regularly at first, and then as the grass develops more roots, you cut back on your watering to where you're into our traditional once-a-week watering is all that any grass should ever need. But uh, it's a bit of work. You just The thing about it is you have to do it all at once. Uh, you can't get busy, and, and you know, I, I worked. <laughs> I was telling my engineer earlier, I, I worked on a, on a grass farm where we actually physically cut the grass with a little hand machine that you walk behind as it chopped it. And I've done a lot of things related to grass and planted a fair amount of grass in my day. And it's it's just work. There's nothing doesn't take. Uh, <laughs> oh, we won't go into Michael Bloomberg and his stupid comments. Doesn't take a whole lot of gray matter to plant grass. But the important things are get it. Plant it immediately, roll it, and you're off to a good start. Yeah, that's a good help. But let me just ask, I know there's something that you've talked about before using a 
a soil activator, but a preparation of the soil or, or anything like that that you could talk about? It's, it is, that yeah, it's a fine thing to do, but I sure don't consider it absolutely necessary. If I were doing anything and I need to plant a little bit of sod later this spring myself, all I'm planning to do is put some of the fertilizer down and then plant right directly on top of it. Uh, if you call me in October, I would have told you, yeah, use your soil activator every few weeks all winter long, but we're getting right. real close close to the best time of year to planting that sod so uh, a soil activator is fine garret juice would always be a good product to uh, spray it all down with um, but uh, you don't go overboard with it uh, and of course garret juice can be used before and after you plant to get things off to a good start but uh, um, what, about, what about just tilling it bob no tilling it you're gonna you're gonna hit more roots than you know you're gonna tear up your sprinkler system and you're gonna bring up every weed out there no sir i i don't recommend tilling before you plant gotcha thank you very much appreciate it bob always a pleasure (laughs) good question thank you john all right should work out just fine six minutes till news and that should be just the right amount of time to talk to lynn and then to ann good morning lynn good morning good morning Well, I have a big problem. (laughs) What's going on? Mountain laurel. Uh Uh-huh. I have a lot of mountain laurel because the deer don't eat them, and I don't have to worry about it. Right. However, every once in a while, one starts to die, and no matter how I examine it and look at it, I don't know what's causing it. just very, very slow. Mm -hmm. not something that happens real Fast as in the leaves, you know, start looking right. a little drip as in. And Brad, black spots on the stem, and they, I've seen it too many times. There are two common problems, uh, Lynn. The most common is watering too often, and the uh, mountain laurels like it dry. Mountain laurels, uh, once mountain laurels established, you basically should never have to water that plant again. And um, it, too frequent watering. Uh, sprinkler systems are the most common cause of death in, in mountain laurels. The second thing is mountain laurels, like many other trees, are frequently planted too deeply, and that will kill them slowly over time. Having soil piled up above, or mulch or anything else, piled up above the natural root flare of the tree will slowly kill the tree. So I think it's always advisable to... And you don't you don't necessarily have to do it yourself, but somebody needs to get the soil away from the base of the tree down to where the root flare is exposed. And your professionals will do something called an air spade that uses just a blast of strong air to remove the soil without hurting the roots. But those are about the only two things I've I've found that kill mountain laurels. But I see it all the time: is watering too frequently and having them buried too deeply. You eliminate those problems, they'll live for a hundred years. Well, yeah, I've noticed that where these are along the fence line, mm-hmm. and sometimes, and I, I know now what you're saying. Okay, the problem is not water. Okay, it's that the the soil and the leaves and whatever have been have built up too much against it and, and i guess that's the reason that, that that would sure do it okay that's it they and, solved my problem well and and it's not real expensive uh how many give me an idea of about how many trees you have well, i mean maybe uh oh 
50, 60. Okay. You're, you're <laughs> looking at probably no more than a day's work with an air spade if you want somebody to do it for you. And uh, uh, it's, it's just not that big a job, but it sure will improve their health. So that would be my suggestion. Well, uh, it's it's against the fence, and I, there's no way I can, I don't think I can save it. But it's, it's just, it just happens. And some, there are, I've been actually using it as I planted them there to cover the uh, fence, mm-hmm. or, yeah. uh, and it, and now I think I can't do anything about it. Sure. Th- well, we'll call a good arborist, ask him about using an air spade, and then just do it uh, as you have as you have time, and uh, as the expense isn't too bad. But uh, that's what I would suggest, Lynn. I'm going to let you go so I can get Ann in here before the news break. Good morning, Ann morning bob thank morning. you for your time i know i know it's short um and i've listened to you for probably 30 years um <laughs> uh sticker burrs yeah um i just wanted to reiterate and then i have a, a question it's a half an inch of organic compost that uh, is over the that is the best thing i have ever found now i did it in the fall and i had almost complete control i'm sure that you will do well doing it in the spring but i don't know you know if if it'd been done in october probably would have been better but um okay. it's going to stop a large number of them and the ones that do come up will be a lot easier to eliminate okay and um this house is in alpine our baby girl bought it <laughs> about 6 months ago oh man and the dog okay won't even go in the backyard <laughs> So does that make any difference? No, it uh, it would be exactly the same in Alpine. Um, I don't know where your best source of compost will be. That's what you're going to have to. That was my next question. Yeah, it's, um, you could call New Earth and ask them if they have any dealers out in that area. You okay. could probably also, uh, there are some nurseries out there. I don't know one by name, but um, you might ask them what they would suggest. At worst, you may end up having to buy it, you know, in bags and just not do the whole yard. But if you can find somebody that offers it in bulk, that would be the best way. I call New Earth and say, hey, do you have a dealer in the Alpine area? Okay. All righty. Anything else I need to know? Um, I know people talked about the corn gluten meal. Yeah, it's just not practical. You have to do it so often. Mow, you know, to try to keep the burrs uh, down, but at this point they're already there. So compost, I think, is going to be the best answer. Well, don't dial right this second, though. As you know, if you've listened for any length of time, uh, we take this 30 minutes to talk with the Dirt Doctor. We'll have time for some more phone calls afterwards. But uh, just a real pleasure every Saturday morning, or almost every Saturday morning, to be able to say good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning to everyone in San Antonio <laughs> and surrounding areas, and and everywhere that that uh, that streaming reaches on the internet. I'm I'm always amazed. I'm sure you find the same thing because you're syndicated on so many different stations. But uh, it's just amazing that uh, where people people hear us. Well, I think uh, we're at the point now where there's more people listening on podcasts and on the live show. It's just the People's lifestyles have uh, evolved around <laughs> that being a, a more uh, comfortable way to go and fit into the schedule better. And eliminate all the listening to all the commercials of things other than gardening supplies. But that's a whole other topic that would probably get me in trouble if I talked about it too much. <laughs> so Listen, it's, There's uh, some news 
uh, today in Dallas about uh, controversy on the Alamo. Have you been uh, keeping up with that any? Oh, listen, we've got the biggest idiots in the world in our city council right now, the mayor among them. And, uh, uh, you know, they have been talking about taking down and moving what they call the cenotaph that, uh, you know, honors the, the guys that gave their life there and, it's um yeah it's it, I, i'm not sure what you're seeing in dallas but it's sort of an ongoing topic of conversation down here well they're talking about dan patrick and bush being in a bit of uh, argument about a, a new design and it sounds like the new design is kind of uh changing it a, a lot yeah. and um more black of you know new development or whatever there there are some really spectacular trees there i hope that they're not going to end up messing with them some of the prettiest anaquas are there and some yep. of the prettiest mexican olives are there yeah right one right at the front door it's the one i've used in in my books uh, for a long long time well and i have no idea what the plants are or how they will be affected i would hope that they have the common sense to uh, to protect such things, but I'm I'm pretty jaded about <laughs> about yeah, city yeah. government, and it's probably true of every big city. I know uh, I know that the city of Dallas doesn't do everything well. I'm I'm proud of our Bernie mayor. We've got a we've got a guy in Bernie that's uh, who's there for all the right reasons. Hates politics. Doesn't want to be a politician. Doesn't want to do anything else except get some problems solved and get out <laughs> but no we face we face some issues in san antonio and uh uh it's i guess it's nothing unique but uh there will be a lot of us crying for that same thing you know please protect what's there vegetation wise and historically but we'll see if they listen to us yeah well good luck yeah yeah good this luck. this past week uh has been an interesting week with and uh, you know i know what a dirty game national politics is but uh i was i was amazed this week to see what one person can do on uh, social media i don't do social media myself but launching a last minute attack on somebody with all sorts of lies and misinformation fortunately um, the person that I favored came out on top, but uh, it's just—it's been a disgusting week when it comes to to politics uh, around here. But you know, on the other hand, uh, I got a a real interesting study somebody sent me this morning by one of the universities in England involving like twenty thousand people. And guess what? They found that if people spent two hours a week in nature or in the garden, they were healthier, they lived better lives, they had better emotions, and uh, and that didn't come as any surprise at all to me. <laughs> so, well, I'm doing a uh, an update on a column that I've written in the past to go in Dallas Morning News about edible landscaping. I've uh-huh. always uh, recommended that put as many edible crops into your landscaping as you can they blend in uh, fine in fact you can do an entire garden with edible things what are what are some of your favorites in that category well i would certainly have to include asparagus in there um i i love things like i think uh, some of the colorful varieties of chard uh whether it's a ruby whether it's the bright light um i think those make very attractive landscape plants Yeah, I, little things like the little chili pekins. A lot of the ornamental, uh, or a lot of the peppers are highly ornamental, as well as being uh, 
really tasty. What What are your favorites? Well, a lot of people don't realize, and I try to make a pretty big deal about that, that a lot of the flowers are <laughs> edible on plants like redbud and, of course, all the fruit trees are edible flowers. And I was just... I, I had a hunch. I had pomegranate in there just for the fruit, and I thought, you know, I bet you those flowers are edible. And I just did a real quick search on it, and lo and behold, uh, the, not only are the flowers edible, but at least the first thing that came up I was looking at says that all parts of the pomegranate are edible, including the bark. So isn't that it's, interesting? Uh, yeah, it's a really you know even if you don't get a full uh, uh, healthy. Uh, ripe fruit, which sometimes is kind of hard to, uh, to do with our climate, the rest of the plant is worth having. The flowers are beautiful, and it's an easy-to-grow plant. Well, and then there are the ornamental varieties for people that are not interested in the fruit that are such. I mean, they're, they are, as you well know, super productive when it comes to flowers. And you can get little dwarf ones, you can get medium-sized ones, or you can let them get great big. If, there's There's quite a quite an array of pomegranate material available out there that's that's something i certainly didn't know that's very interesting yeah of course all the hibiscus i think a lot of people aren't uh, aware that uh, if you're using an organic program uh, there's so many flowers are edible and all the hibiscus both the uh, tropical and the perennial are the althea also the petals you don't mm-hmm. eat the whole flower of those big flowers because the uh, Reproductive parts in the middle tend to be kind of bitter, and some can even be a little toxic. <laughs> that anyway. should be a very. I will look forward to to seeing that. Uh, that that make a real interesting study. And yet, one thing that uh, one of um, our ladies uh, who was quite a cook and also uh, something of a decorator for people, and you have to do this pretty much at the last minute. In making a confetti to put put on a cake and things like that, wedding cakes and things like that, she takes a lot of the flowers you just mentioned and throws them into the blender for just you know a quick pulse of it, and then you've got just yep. this wonderful, edible, colorful confetti made of flowers. Yeah, it's something that people don't do enough, and of course, there's a lot of people that shouldn't be doing it because they're out there. You know, spraying every 10 days at the recommendations of dimwits that are still <laughs> with us out there. But anyway, another thing I wanted to bring up, I may be interrupting something you wanted to bring up no. uh, so I don't forget it. Uh, I'm not a, a big fan of Elbon Rye to use uh-huh. as a cover crop. And I tell you why, and you, you kind of alluded to it, it's a, it makes a mess. Yep. It's really It's really hard to get rid of. I, I tell you where I've used it the most. I've used it in some landscape situations where we needed a temporary uh, grass cover because you can put it out inexpensively by seed, you know, in the mm-hmm. fall and, and get something to cover the ground and all, and then just mow the heck out of it when it gets hot and time to plant a, a warm season crop. But we've also used with some interesting success uh, for those cover crop things wheat oats and barley hmm. and I, and i think i kind of lean toward that more than the uh, elbon rye because it's so much easier to, to get rid of i think you're probably exactly right and and the other thing too pretty cover crop oh yeah and uh, the thing that they've always promoted Elbon Rye for was a trap crop for root-knot nematodes. But I have to tell you, in my organic garden, I can't remember the last time I had a problem with root-knot nematodes. I just, um, I, I think if people are doing it right, it's not going to be an issue they're going to have to deal with. 
if you have healthy soil, it's it's yeah. not an issue, absolutely. And if you do, it's a good indicator. It's a good indicator that if it shows up on any of your plants, you need to do a little more work to get that <laughs> biological activity kicked up. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Well, and I was kind of amazed when this guy said it planted and it was only eight inches tall. I, I I was sitting here thinking he's he's lucky it's not twenty four inches tall by now. But no, I'd I'd agree with you. And uh, and it, do you like using the legumes for cover crops, uh, Austrian oh, yeah. winter peas and things like that? I think are pretty as well. Yeah, and I was just uh, adding to my list of edible. Uh, uh, landscape uh, crops, clover, because clover not only the uh, the flat the uh, foliage but the flowers are edible, and so it's just it's good to use across the board. So one one thing I use in the summer that's really fun too for people who hadn't tried it yet, really easy to grow, and the seeds inexpensive is buckwheat. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh huh. It, it makes it you can transition from your cool season uh, cover crops over to it, and it's really, really a pretty little plant. It grows like crazy. Real, real easy to grow. You know, I need to get some seed and and plant it. Buckwheat, something I've never grown, but I've I've actually had uh, a good deal of interest in that. I think you may have brought it up one of our previous conversations, and and that's exactly what yeah. people have said. It's pretty and it grows easily. Yeah, give it a shot. And for whatever reason, I guess because it, the production's so easy, but the, the seed is very inexpensive, or at least it has been in the past when I bought it. <laughs> I guess we better not talk about it too much. It seems like so many things used to be really reasonably priced until they became up, popular, yeah. and then they jacked it up. But, uh, no, it's, uh, they're, they're just a lot of... There's just a lot of opportunities to be creative in the landscape, and uh, so many landscapes are just so boring that uh, I, I love different ideas and, and just different ways of doing things. This uh, site I'm looking at uh, that came up first even says that banana blossoms are edible. I didn't realize that. And of course, all the monardas, all those uh-huh. are. It, it, there's a very high percentage of plants that are edible. you got to be careful though and not get carried away and i try to put a warning always in in this column pregnant women need to be careful about uh, strong herbs in general but sure uh, a lot of plants can be uh, toxic you know jicama is the most interesting one it has such a magnificent uh, fruit as you know Uh a root uh it's so fresh and crisp and, and everything but the top is a toxic plant yeah, isn't that interesting? Kind of like tapioca. Tapioca is actually a good ornamental plant. It's what, uh, you know, what at least I grew up. My mom, that was one of her favorite things was to make tapioca pudding. Uh, but they have to do special things to the roots. I don't know it's something you could do at home, but it's another one of those plants where the roots are very nutrition. The top is very poisonous. Yeah. Do, do y'all have... Growing around, probably can it probably comes up wild here and there. The black locust, the one that has the uh, the white flowers, not much. Uh, that, in my experience, was more of an East Texas plant. I've just never never seen much of it growing in our uh, in our really calcareous soils. But uh, I don't know whether it's Rose just here. It doesn't last a long time. Yeah. It's kind of short-lived plant. It has real pretty white flowers, and they're they're edible as well. And there's there's one called Purple Robe that's a cultivar that has a deep purple flower, too. I would assume that those flowers are edible, too, although I'm not positive on that. <laughs> yeah. Same plant should be. 
should be, but but all things in moderation. Eat a little bit before you go out and take a whole lot. I think your advice is so well given too that you know don't overdo it on anything. And uh, then of course we're just coming out of the season where we had nasturtiums and pansies, and you you can find good edible things in the landscape pretty much year round. Yeah, some of the things that we uh, use most commonly are edible, and the, the pansies and Johnny jump ups and. Uh, uh, a lot of those winter uh, mm-hmm. things are, you know, dianthus among the best. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's can't quite make up its mind to be spring down here. We're getting uh, we're getting a lot of nice days interspersed with sometimes it's been a little chilly. We had about a free a freeze about a week ago, but uh, I decided to go ahead and risk it. I went ahead and planted tomatoes this week, and I may regret it. (laughs) But, you know, if they freeze, it didn't cost me very much. And if they don't freeze, I'll have the first tomatoes around. But, boy, people are anxious to uh, get out and work in the garden. And that's such a good thing because uh, uh, it's just so, so easy to grow so many different things if you do it right and use the right products. You know, I, here's another one that, that just popped up on the edible list. The daylilies, I've always told people that the flowers are edible, and it's fairly common. You'll see chefs use that uh-huh. uh, quite a bit. But also the uh, the uh, buds are edible, so you can uh, pick them when the, before they uh, open and use them any time that you have anything out there in the garden. Any part of the, the, the flowering part of uh, daylilies are edible and, and very tasty. That's, you know, it, it would be it would be fun. You you've known some great herb growers over the years, and back when you're doing your wonderful book on herbs of Texas, um, I know was Odina was the older lady that had ninety years of experience with it, or something like that. And yeah, uh, Odina Branham. Yeah, but uh, I, I've never really I, I can't say that I have tasted a whole lot myself, and it'd be. Real interesting to attempt to describe the flavor of some of these different things because imagine it varies pretty widely and uh, some of it's probably fairly pleasing and some of it may be what we would call an acquired taste. It's... Yeah, even gladiolas that are edible and that, that uh, surprises me a little bit. I would have uh, not come up with that one on my own. So it's uh, yeah, it's a big list. Man, you know, and the one you haven't mentioned is so common are roses. So, you know, rose hips are certainly oh, yeah, sure. edible, so I would presume that the flowers are going to be edible as well. And not only edible, but a good source of vitamin C. Yeah, they, that's exactly what we say about them. And uh, it's one of the ones that I've really warned people about because so many people think you have to <clears throat> spray some kind of toxic chemical if you grow roses on a very regular basis and what a lot of folks don't know is that those toxins tend to uh, accumulate in the reproductive parts of the plant so you're really when you're using uh, toxic chemicals do not consider the plants edible plants yeah so true. We're we're having uh, Diane Baines is going to give our seminar over at the nursery this morning, and uh, I was just appalled. She, you know, always uh, emails uh, a bunch of things that uh, she gets us to reproduce for handouts, and just looking at all the toxic stuff that's on so many of the foods out there. I'm really looking forward to her lecture, but uh, uh, people 
people would be real wise to stay away from those sprays in the garden. And bottom line, they just aren't necessary. That's just what always amazes me, that if you simply choose the right plants, grow them in an organic environment, you have very, very few problems. And if you have problems, they're probably telling you something about the way you're growing them that needs to be changed. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the trees that we grow here that I've got in this list, too, and I don't know if y'all could get away with it down there or not. I bet you c- could because it's uh, it's pretty durable, and that's the Little Leaf Linden. Yes. Yep. Have you ever tried to grow it down there? It, again, is one of those trees that is just hard to find, but Roberta has had lindens, um, I, at least a handful of them, growing around her ranch, growing up her canyon uh um, you know, growing wild there. So, yeah, and it's a beautiful. Yeah, that's the basswood. That's a native native plant. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, that one was hard to find, too. I tried to design that into a landscape project one time, and I had I had no luck at all getting it. And I finally bought one little one mail order, I think. And as I do with a lot of my experimentations, it got buried under <laughs> too much shade, and I didn't keep it around. But I, I designed some little leaf lindens into the uh, – Collin County Community College years ago when I mm-hmm. did that landscape design out there. And uh, two of them still exist, and they're great, big, and just doing beautifully. And I don't know how they've they've survived the uh, remodeling and expansion <laughs> of the place out there and, and are really looking good. Somebody needs to get, go be looking for seed and propagating them. Uh, old friend uh, who's been gardening a long time was calling me this morning from up in Fredericksburg, and uh, he was digging up rusty black haw viburnum out along his fence line, and I really wanted to say, hey, why don't you dig up about an extra 50 of them, and I know people who would love to have them. Um, they're just, there's so many good native plants out there, and uh, there's just a real opportunity for people to want to grow them. We got, a, we got a shipment of natives yesterday from one of the big growers up in the Austin area, but Man, there's a lot more that I'd love to see produced because it's just such a good landscape plant, and and they're so maintenance-free, and once they're established, they're so drought-tolerant. Yeah, it's a frustrating thing, and I've even experienced it myself. You know, one of the plants you mentioned earlier was uh, Rusty Black Hall by Burnham, and Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorites, too, but... I have. It took me. I think I bought about six, and I've got um, I've got two left. They're doing beautifully, yep. really well. But the others didn't make it. So there seems to be some, and I see that with some of the other native plants as well. And I think that may be what keeps the the growers uh, continuing to shy away from them. They're just not as foolproof as doing a cedar elm or a crepe myrtle or a, <laughs> a live oak. You know. Yeah. Well, how are you doing with your Chinese photania? You mentioned that you've been digging up a lot of seedlings from around that, and that's another of my favorite plants that I wish we had more commonly in the trade. It gets big. You know, it's too big for a lot of landscapes, but uh, golly, talk about a a durable, pretty plant that has nice flowers and uh, nice nice foliage. I've got it popping up all over the place, and I'm delinquent on getting it dug up. It's got new foliage on all of it, so it's going to be <laughs> kind of touch and go about how well it's going to transplant now. So that's, I may be waiting on a lot of it till next season. Yeah, that's the problem. It's just there's so much going on and so many things we need to do this time of year. You just uh, just have to prioritize, and I look back sometimes and say, gee, I sure wish I'd done this last month, but like you say, then you just have to look forward and say, well, let's try to remember to do it next year. Are you planting a, a vegetable garden at the office this year? 
Yeah, I'm going to uh, get back into that. I've kind of, since I've been working on the art so much nonstop, on, uh, since I started that about almost two years ago now, I haven't done that much out there. don't have very much except the perennial stuff, but I'm about to get that going and uh, back under control. One of the um, uh, flowers I want to add there and in some pots, too, and I, it just dawned on me that I uh, should have done it already, is nasturtiums. That's uh-huh. one of the great edible plants because every bit, every part of that plant is edible and really tasty. The buds, especially, real peppery uh uh, nice flavors, not a bland kind of thing at all. And it's a pretty plant in the landscape. You know, it, oh, yeah, it is a cooler yeah. season plant, but golly, there there are varieties out there now with variegated foliage and various flower colors, and uh, uh, it's it's just a, a real neat plant. It's another one of those that uh, is pretty in the landscape and pretty on the on the table as well. And uh, by the way, for those of you that plant okra, and I know a lot of you will, don't forget that the uh, uh, the flowers of the okra are also edible too, just like a hibiscus. Just again, just use the petals. Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're back there into that same family as as the hibiscus yep. and the althea and cotton and uh, i don't know about cotton but i would think the flowers there it, it's funny i have a friend up in bernie that was showing me his his cotton seed and he always plants a little bit of cotton you know in his landscape out front and he was telling me he said i've got a new get rich scheme for us here because he was showing me this package of having i don't know it had five or six uh, seeds in it and he said it was like $15 or something like that. Uh, he couldn't find it locally. He bought it on the Internet. And I said, man, you know, if people were, would, would pay that much for cottonseed, that would be that would be something. But that, that's another really pretty plant with an interesting flower. Yeah, you bet. I think it is, too. I actually designed it into some projects, especially the color ones, but mm-hmm. uh, it's it's kind of a fun fun plant to grow. I agree. It's easy to grow, too. And back to the okra, that red-leafed okra is beautiful, and the pods are red, oh, yeah. the leaves are red, the flowers are yellow, and, uh, oh, we had, <laughs> if, if we just take time to sit down and think about it, we'd come up with a really long list of things that are both attractive in the landscape, but, uh, and, of course, you have the ideal situation there, because at home, you have a great trial garden for everything that grows in the shade and at the office you have a great trial garden for everything that grows in the sun well one of the uh things that's uh that i enjoy doing i wish i had a little bit more sun is experiment with stuff and see what will grow here that, that won't one of the vines that y'all do so well with there that rangoon creeper mm-hmm. i i have tried it a couple times but i still have one at the office that comes back every year and it doesn't bloom at all it's just too uh, shady there yeah. i think that uh, that pretty i guess it needs full sun pretty much all day long well roberta has it and uh i know it's been a while but you've seen her garden but uh one of the the gate that goes out from her garden kind of out into the little what she calls compound field area she has an arbor there and has a, a plant on either side and it gets so dense you can barely walk through and huge numbers of flowers on it. The fragrance is wonderful. And it freezes to the ground, but it comes right back out. And she's north of San Antonio, probably pretty similar to Dallas in temperatures. And uh, 
Uh, we've had some cold winters, and it's never failed to come back vigorously in the spring. So uh need, need to find a sunny place for that, and you'll, yep. you'll get to see more than just the vine because flowers are pretty, and the fragrance is such. You'll smell it. It's you know, kind of like sweet almond verbena. You, you, you walk outside, and you know when it's in bloom. Well, I've got uh, some places that are full sun there at the office where I've uh, I've been changing some things out. So if I can find some of it here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, I don't think a lot of people even know what it is. Yeah, but it's uh, it's probably one of the most dramatic vines you can uh, you can plant flower wise. You know, another one that's kind of cool that some people don't think of. In fact, I forget about it myself is the uh, loofah vine uh-huh. yeah it is yeah. very fast growing and has nice texture the flowers are dramatic and edible yeah and then of course the uh, the loofahs are uh, edible as well in fact i was talking to some uh, people at one of the community gardens a couple of years ago and they actually ate the loofah they just uh, said the only thing you have to do is pick it when it's uh, young and mm-hmm. tender before it gets you know too big and tough which is the same thing we see about all the other squash and that's yeah. it's just yeah. basically an arboreal squash so to speak but uh and then it's fun if you let them get big and dry them you know the old loofah was the original sort of scouring sponge before they came out with all this synthetic stuff and uh right. it's right. it's it's a conversation piece growing out there hanging down from the trees it's, it's a fun thing to talk about i think you've got a a good deal of uh, a good deal of material there for more than one column well, we'll uh, continue to talk about it as we come up with uh, new ideas. You guys uh, enjoy this pretty weather, and we'll, we'll do this again next week. We will look forward to it. Uh, give a big uh, a big pet to uh, Tater and Nellie, and um, <laughs> we will we'll look forward. There's just so many things to talk about in so little time, Howard. But just as always, thank you so much for spending a little bit of your Saturday morning with us. Well, it's fun. Nellie's out there shivering, so I don't know if she's got a problem or if she's thinking about the squirrel that she's trying to nail. Enjoy it as always, Bob. We'll see you all next time. Look forward to it, Howard. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. Sure looking forward to Diane's seminar a little bit later this morning. And uh, if you're, uh, well, if you're interested in staying healthy and interested in seeing a lot of problems in our food chain today, Come on over and hear all about it. Free charge. You don't sign up. You just show up. Seminar starts about 945. Coffee will be on by 9. On the phones, okay, we'll talk to Steve and Cindy and Madeline and James. And Steve's up first. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, sir. Morning. Last fall, you talked about human hair to try to eliminate squash bores. What's the process? I have not tried it. This is what a caller had suggested, and basically it's just sprinkling around, you know, the the plants. The squash vine borer usually lays its egg somewhere on the first four to six inches of the stem, and so that's where you want to keep the borer away. Uh, human hair is also actually a relatively good fertilizer, fairly high in nitrogen, but you just would uh, use it as sort of a mulch around uh, right at the right at the base, right where the squash comes out of the ground. The first few inches of stem is the place you'd want to put it. Okay. All right. Appreciate your help. Thanks. Please, please get back and let me know your results on it, because we're always looking for another uh, way to combat the squash vine borers. I look forward to hearing from you. I got a whole bushel basket. I'm going to try it this year. Thank you. <laughs> I look forward to it, Steve. Thank you, sir. All right. Next up is going to be Cindy. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning, Bob. I've got a couple of questions. Um, 
I've got a really healthy crop of clover in with all my onions and beets and other types of things in the vegetable garden. Mm -hmm. Do I need to be concerned about that or just work around it, or do I need to pull it, try to get it all out of there, or what? You know, as long as it's not shading the foliage of your crops. I mean, some clovers grow very tall, some stay lower to the ground. Uh, they all build the soil. They are all legumes. They all have little nodules associated with the root systems filled with bacteria that, that basically make fertilizer from the air. So in general, clover's a good thing, but uh, only time I'd really worry about it is if it was getting too tall, if it was interfering with the no. sun getting to your other plants. Otherwise, just uh, consider it a, a, just a, a green ground cover cover crop. Okay, okay. Well, that that's good. That's good to know. And my other question is, I've got irises and daylilies throughout other parts of the yard and don't know a whole lot about them, but they always have you know, dead-looking leaves that are on it all the time. Is that just normal for those plants? It really is. look a little messy? It it really is. We grow them for their for their flowers, not for their foliage. And, you know, it just, it, it's one of those fall garden chores, or I guess spring garden chores. They, the, you should be growing evergreen daylilies as opposed to the ones that go dormant. The evergreens just do so much better here, but they've always got some dead leaves that are just the old leaves. The iris are the same way, and it's, uh, it's just a little bit of work every every fall or every spring to go through and clean them up a little bit, but uh, not harmful. It's like every week or two to go through and pull out <laughs> dead leaves and mow them over or something like well, that. Well, as yard, mow them over. Yeah, as they uh, as we get into the spring where they're putting on a lot of new foliage, uh, you're not going to see that as nearly as much of an issue. But um, yeah, this time of year you'll you'll spend some time doing it, but. Uh, my, my thing is on, on the, uh, German iris, I'm going to be actually cutting the leaves because, uh, you sometimes end up pulling up more than you want to, if you're trying to, to pull them off by hand, the daylilies, on the other hand, the dead leaves typically separate real easily from the bottom. But, uh, yeah, it's just one of those garden chores and they're one of those plants. that's kind of, kind of messy, takes a little bit more attention, but it's not too bad. Okay. Okay, I just didn't know if I was watering too much, not enough, or or what. So, All right, but the plants are growing well and providing good flowers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and some that we um, picked up years ago from a place where we used to store our boat because you know I just thought, well, I'll see what these do. <laughs> I've had to divide them. I guess they're more what they would call like a cemetery iris. I have divided them over and over and over, and they still keep filling in the area faster than I can keep up with them sometimes. Well, if you like them, that's but a great pretty. thing. If you yeah, if you go to buy more iris, one thing I would definitely look for is what they call the reblooming, because there are a bunch of new of those cemetery iris, German iris, bearded iris, whatever you want to call them. You know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. most of them bloom once in the spring, and that's it for the year. But a lot of these new rebloomers will bloom, you know, several times through the growing season, and it's just kind of a, it's kind of a good bonus. You get a lot more flowers for the same amount of space, and uh, I just think they're beautiful. They're one of my favorite flowers. You got to have sun to do well with them, but you obviously you ha- you have what they take because they're growing and blooming for you. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes some of them in the backyard actually get a little sunburnt. I don't know if it's just the way the sun hits them, um, it, you know, later in the summertime or what, but the leaves will actually get like they're burnt. And I see a little bit of the same thing, but I'd rather have a few a few burned leaves and have them too much shade and not get any flowers. That's right. Okay, well, you have a good day. 
You do the same, Cindy. Always good to talk to you. I appreciate the call. All right, coming down toward the end of the show. Remember, we do this again tomorrow morning from 8 till 11, and then I have the pleasure of sitting in with Dr. Kirby uh, from 11 till noon on pet health. So uh, if you didn't get through today, you'll have another opportunity. We're going to talk to Madeline and then James. Good morning, Madeline. Yes, Bob. I have a a foxtail fern, Uh uh, some in the ground and some in pots, and I have a lot of trouble with dead stems in them. And I'm wondering if that's my watering, if I'm overwatering or underwatering. You're probably letting them get too dry. Now, I I don't like the term overwatering. I prefer to say watering too often because there's no such thing as putting too much water on a plant at one time. And that foxtail has, excuse me, a fairly deep root system, and it needs to be watered very, very thoroughly. And sometimes you're watering often enough, but the water's just not really getting all the way down to those lower roots. So um, I probably would certainly increase the duration on the watering. And certainly in the pots, you may need to increase the frequency a little bit. But um, that's, uh, that. you know, if, if it was a question of too frequent watering, you'd be seeing problems with the newer growth. In this case, you've got the older leaves are yellowing and then kind of dying out. And so that's almost always a sign they're getting a little too dry. All right. Thank you. Very good. Anything else I can do for you this morning? That's it. You get out and enjoy, Madeline. Thanks for the call this morning. (laughs) Goodbye. All right. uh, We'll probably finish up today with James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm just enjoying, looking forward to getting out into a beautiful day, and uh, gonna be a busy one. There's just so much to do this time of year. Well, you don't need any more chores then, huh? <laughs> well, I, I'm open to suggestion, but uh, I I think I've probably got a pretty full day as it begins. So, what about you? Man, I'm tripping over tomato plants here in the hoop house. I got it's totally tomatoes out here. Uh, I'm having all kinds of fun. Uh, um, that's that. That would be the name of a good book. Totally tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> I got um, some questions for you. Um, the lufa gourds. Uh, yeah. Uh, if if we plant them outside the wire, uh, that means that the deer are out there and. Uh, Nobody knows. I've called everybody. I've talked to everybody. If the loofah is deer-proof. I would call it deer-resistant. I don't think anything is totally deer-proof. But, you know, it's got that kind of spiny stem. It's got that kind of prickly. It's basically just, a um, you know, somewhere between a gourd and a squash. And yeah. on my ranch, the deer do not ever touch the gourds. Now, I can't say that I've ever had loofah out where they could get to them, but I think you'll find it'll be deer-resistant, if not deer-proof. Well, you can't grow them underneath the tree because they need full sun. You can grow yep. them in the sun, and then they'll climb on the tree. But, exactly, yeah. Uh, I, I, I wanted to plant them out on the fence wire, see what happened out there. Hey, seed's cheap. I give it a try and see what you find, as long as you can... You know, they, they are a little thirsty, like all all squash are, But uh, if you want them to be real pretty. But uh, I'd, I'd sure give it a try, James. I I think you're going to find that uh, they're pretty much leave them alone. Especially, you know, right now, there's uh, 
unless you're in an area where you just got way, way, way too many deer. The deer have a lot of browse. We've had not a lot of rain, but we've had rains at the right time this spring to bring out a lot of the things that the deer feed on. So I'm seeing fewer deer right around my yard than I usually do, which tells me they've got more to eat out away from the place. So I'd, I'd, I'd give it a try. Yeah, it's as green as Dublin on St. Patrick's Day out here. It's, uh, <laughs> there's plenty. Uh, the uh, cilantro, uh, if if I do transplants when the weather starts to get hot uh, and then uh, plug them in, are they going to, uh, instead of going to leaf, are they going to go to to seed right away? That has always been my that's been my experience with cilantro. Now you're you're an excellent gardener and your growing conditions are just a little bit different and you know who knows what the weather's gonna do. If it if we start having mainly eighty and ninety degree days, um I think they're the combination of the longer days and uh, the warmer temperatures, an awful lot of them will be prone to go to seed. But uh there there may be something to say, be said for experimenting with some different varieties. I know, and I don't know how they do it. I know they produce cilantro all summer long out in California. But maybe it's just that uh, they're growing in a much cooler situation. But uh, I sure wouldn't do too much of it because I'm afraid most of it is going to go to seed. So transplants will just run right to seed. That's... Yeah. Or, or, and, you know, seed growing will do the same thing. You just won't even have a decent transplant before it starts bolting. Okay, all right. Well, thanks for uh, taking my call and answering my questions. Uh, so have fun, and uh, don't work too hard. So are you, uh, uh, yeah, and I, old Malcolm Beck used to always say the only difference in work and play is the amount of pleasure you derive from it. So I play hard. I don't, I don't work very hard, but I play hard at a lot of different things. So what do you think about weather? You think people are going to be safe to be putting their tomato transplants out? What is uh, What are James' many years in the in the business of planting telling you about the weather i'm scared i mean i'm i'm a, I'm a feared uh, a lot of my uh woodcutting buddies say uh around the middle of the month towards the last part of march we're supposed to get real cold so um you take the dice and throw them out well, I guess in my case, it means have the insulate handy. I, and I, you know, uh, I, I I put some things in the ground. I haven't put the cages over them yet, but I always cut, you know, my little my little strips of insulate and wrap that lower 18 inches just to keep the wind off of them. But I also can sometimes put that little that little chimney. Clothespins work real well for putting roll covers around tomato cages. But uh, I hope I hope your buddies are wrong. I just this has been such a weird year. I don't know what to expect, but. Uh, um <laughs> well you ought to try the the grandma method of early tomatoes you you get yourself an old rusty wheelbarrow and put a couple of a two or three gallon uh tomatoes in it and roll it out on nice days and roll it in on not nice days <laughs> well that's kind of like my greenhouses whether i open the the windows or not my problem is that uh I always try to beat the traffic into San Antonio, and so I'm leaving the house when it's still pretty chilly, 
and yeah. just gambling that it's not going to get too cold before I get it out there. But, you know, I, I have a, a good friend up there that uh, came up with a pretty unique thing. He planted early, and he said he was going to go out and buy some styrofoam ice chests to put over them. And I said, why don't you just go to the, you know, pet shop or go to the vets? Because everybody ships that stuff that has to stay cool in those styrofoam coolers. He went to a pet shop that ships a lot of fish in them, and he sent me the picture, and it just looked like a little row of igloos out there. But uh, every one of those plants came through just fine, the freeze we had up Bernie the other night. So it uh, might be one more thing for folks to think about before they get too big. We had 27 degrees, and I told you about those cold frames I was building yep, out of absolutely. that insulation uh-huh. material. And it was uh, in the morning, well, when I pulled the cover off, it was 44 degrees inside of the, the cold frame. So Man. that's the way to go. <laughs> it's it's a great, great thing you've discovered out there. And, uh, and those big old, that old big old thick wall insulation, you can pretty much construct anything you want to out of it. So, James, you're going to have to do a book one of these days with lots and lots of pictures. We always enjoy hearing from you and learning what you're doing. Well, it's, uh, it's always uh, great to hear your voice on a nice... Uh, Saturday morning, everybody's getting ready to go out and get some projects started or finished or whatever. Uh, and I sure appreciate your show, Bob. Well, I always enjoy visiting with you. So you get out and enjoy, and we will talk again soon. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Goodbye.